And so welcome everyone. This is the 17th year that I've had the honor of hosting our Appreciation and Renewal Day for care providers, both professional care providers and people that are doing this as part of their personal life and their relatedness to others doing care providing. So 17 years of doing this. And each time it's a fresh experience for me of reflecting and truly appreciating uh, you and, and what you do for our community. It's one of the things that Spirit Rock can do in the way of service is to address things where people are getting burned out, discouraged, seem overwhelmed. We, through the Dhamma, know how to be with any kind of suffering, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, all these different meanings of this word dukkha. We do know how to help you be with that in a way that brings ease and well-being. And so this is the kind of service that we feel qualified to be doing rather than some sort of, uh, like we, if Spirit Rock was going to do a soup kitchen, we don't know about doing soup kitchens and there's people that know how to do that so we send people to those organizations that want to do that and don't try to be all things to all people in that way. But this we actually know how to do and um, it's, been, um, uh, it's been quite a, a growth in understanding as I've done this with, for so many years. How many of you are new to Spirit Rock period, first time here? Okay, so about maybe 15 of you. And I do want to be recording this whole day. Okay. And then how many of you have attended a residential retreat here? So about 20. Okay, thank you. And um, uh, how many of you have done... Uh, day-longs are classes, but not residential retreats. Okay, thank you. That helps me have a feel for your experience here. This day has a number of purposes, that is, goals, aspirations, that uh, we, we hold for you. And one is this acknowledgement and appreciation of your of your efforts. We know, I have heard Oh, I must have heard now a thousand stories about how difficult at times it is to be a care provider. And um, um, we really know that. And we also know how essential it is that care providing happen. And so particularly for those of you who are doing this uh, out of the goodness of your heart to those people you're related to, uh, thank you for doing that. Someone has to take care of people that are in need. It seems like such a basic understanding, but as our society has gotten more fractured, this has become, uh, there's a, a disconnect that so often occurs with people. And so there's not, uh, people are sort of abandoned. There's not care providing happening in, uh, from a relatedness. And then we also know how incredibly rewarding it is at times to be a care provider, to be giving without looking for something back in that way. So much appreciation from all of that. We also know 
that it can be fatiguing, it can be discouraging, it can be despairing, there can be a lack of resources, there can be a, a lack of, uh, of appreciation, a lack of attention from others, people not doing their fair share, that the very people you're providing care for don't take responsibility for their own helping themselves, whether you're doing this, again, personally or doing this professionally. We have heard, we have heard, we know, we have witnessed, and again, we acknowledge this truth is part of your experience. And so uh, this, uh, this uh, four effects of care providing, the, the difficult, the essential nature of it, the rewarding, the fatiguing, that, um, that uh, is why you need a day. It's that combination of it being meaningful work, but the very meaning can bring forth a kind of efforting that is very tiring, you know. And just the literalness of the work is tiring. But if we get in any way clinging around it, if we're demanding change, or we're turning on ourselves with a way of, I'm not doing a good enough job, and start berating ourselves, we we can uh, easily go into a downward spiral. And in general having, again, all of these years of experience, I can say that there's widespread burnout among uh, uh, personal and professional care providers. And so this is a day to renew yourself, to appreciate what you've done, but to catch up with yourself, to catch up to like, oh, this is how I'm feeling, this is what I need to do. Uh, to take care of myself. Oh, I need to let loose of that story that I've been telling myself about that that patient or, or the, this interaction I had with uh, t- taking care of my mother or my my child or whomever it is. That to, uh, to let loose of that. So there are a number of different ways we kind of circumambulate the uh, range of possibilities as to how we can uh, self renew. As we, as we go through this. So again, starting with the thank you. That, uh, so for you to really hear that for a moment. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are recognized. Someone is registering your efforts. So I'm pausing for a moment to let that sink in. So if the first purpose is this acknowledgement and all, then the second purpose of the day is for you to find a way to give yourself a day that's about you. Today is not about those you're caring for other than yourself. So the purpose is for you to care for yourself today, not as obligation, but as a natural returning to the heart's freedom, where we let loose of the mental uh, the, the aversion, the mental clinging, the mental uh, demanding things be other than they are, and we come back to the heart's natural liberation. And the sitting that we will be doing throughout the day allows that. We'll be doing walking meditation that allows that. We'll have various little 
exercises of one kind or another to do that. And um, just be available. Just be available for yourself. Don't uh, start to manage yourself. Just be available to yourself. The body will know what to do. The mind will know what to do. But most of all, the heart will know what to do. It is not so easy to stop managing ourselves. You may have already noticed that. No one in the room seems so young they would not have had an experience of how hard it is not to manage oneself, to think one has to be in charge every moment. There is a role for our choice to play. There is a role for reflection of what's wise and not wise, a kind of discernment. But not so much managing and not not saying, well, it's got to be like this or it's not worth it. We don't know what makes it worth it. And the more we're simply available for the mysterious part of well-being to arise, the more likely we'll have a day that really refreshes, really refreshes. One of the mistakes, one of the misperceptions is a better word, is that people imagine that, oh, if I'm sitting here in meditation, everything's going to be just, oh, it's going to be so nice and quiet and I'll just feel great. Well, oftentimes what happens is the, the, all the thoughts that you've not gotten to have, they'll go, oh, now at least she's being quiet and now I can tell her how I feel. And so there can be these, these uh, feelings of uh, turmoil that come up in the meditation. That doesn't mean that, that uh, things are going badly, that you're doing something wrong. Part of being at the monastery for a day is there is a releasing, there's a kind of purification that's part of renewal. And so stuff comes up. The uh, skillful means in that is not to feed it, to not try to figure it out or not keep pushing at it, but let it come up and pass on its own. Anything, any part of you, any aspect of your experience is welcome to arise here. And then, again, in being available for the Dhamma to serve you, to bring this renewal, you let it come and go. You don't hold on to it. You don't try to fix it. You don't judge it. You don't compare it. You just let it be. And so there's in that, there's acknowledging what's true. And... Uh, Acknowledging what's true doesn't mean we sink under what's true if what's true has got a lot of difficulty in it. It knows, oh, this what's true that's difficult is to be carried. That's part of life. It's part of what I am choosing to do with my life. Uh, This wonderful woman who has been dead for some years now, her name's Helen Luke, uh, she talks about suffering, this word that uh, we use so much, the the Buddhist term dukkha for it, meaning, again, many, not just physical and emotional suffering, but certainly that, but also unsatisfactoriness of the experience, the quick changing nature of experience. So even if some, some wonderful moment passes, and where did that wonderful moment go? And all of these different, uh, the stress of, of, of the doing, all of these different uh, meanings tied up in this dukkha. So Helen Luke talks about neurotic suffering, neurotic dukkha, and, uh, and uh, conscious dukkha, mindful, uh, mindful dukkha. When we mindfully accept 
that this is part of my experience. And we don't make a big story out of it. We just accept this too, this too. This too is to be known. This too is to be lived through, not held on to. If we got a choice to let loose of it, we let loose of it right then, but sometimes not. Sometimes we just have to go on through. So in this day, I speak to you as adult to adult, as, uh, as persons who have capacity of heart. I have the faith and the, and the capacity of your heart, and I speak to you from that way. And at times, you may go, that doesn't suit me, I'm not, I don't have that capacity. I am carrying that possibility for you till you can carry it for yourself. The silence of the day is part of the healing that will occur and uh, the, uh, the stillness of the mind that sometimes occurs. Sometimes when your mind is really going uh, on and on and on, if you just notice the stillness in the room, you can rest back in the stillness of the room rather than being pulled into your chattering mind. You just be aware of, oh, it's quiet. People aren't moving very much. It's not perfectly silent. We don't want perfectly silent. That's make us too dependent on that and take us away from life too much. But the, the relative stillness, the relative silence of the room, and you write that in to your own stillness, your own silence. And then the other purpose of the day is to provide various pieces of knowledge that we have learned of Buddhist psychology that can help you uh, professionally in your professional work and can help you in your personal care providing. And there are pieces that are overlapping and there are pieces that are a bit more separate. And that will all be obvious as we go. Towards the end of the day, and I don't know exactly when that's going to occur, but I'm going to... uh, uh, have a section at at the end of the day for those of you who are professional care providers to ask questions and uh, we'll have some interactions. And everyone's welcome to stay for that, but I will also, uh, somewhere around 4.30 or something like that, uh, I'll do an, an ending so that if those of you that don't want to stay for that, you don't have to stay for it, but you're welcome to stay in that way. So again, the format is sitting. We'll sit for 30 to 40 minutes at a time. Walking periods, we'll walk from 20 to 30 minutes at a time. Q&A, and that will happen. And then uh, some, um, some, again, specific kinds of exercises. For those of you who are professional care providers, the I will do a series of instructions, brief instructions for a, a number of the sits. And uh, I'm, I'm doing them in a sequence that uh, if you are working with, your, uh, with people that are in a lot of pain emotionally or physically, that you, you might see how you could apply some of these uh, in, in your work and in a very brief way in your work, not getting ahead of yourself in terms of trying to give too much meditation instruction without having had a lot more instruction than I'll be giving today. But you can sort of uh, 
take these instructions and and uh, see how to use them. And everyone can take it for your personal life and use it. So we're the one we're going to be starting with is arriving in the room. And there's so many different situations where it's a challenge to arrive. It's just a challenge. Like we don't want to be there or we're too nervous or there's something we want to have happen or we, we're too tired and we're, so we've been in our personal lives taking care of someone and then we get to work and you know, we're half at work and half home and half you know, asleep or whatever it may be. And uh, uh, there, there's a conscious uh, kind of, of mindfully stepping through to arrive where you are. And that is very, very useful in all of our lives. And so if you will uh, close your eyes. We'll, actually, let somebody stand up for a moment. Just stand. So we've already been sitting for a few minutes. And just move your body a little. Let your legs bend a little. And just move your shoulders. Breathe out. And sit down. In order to have choice as to how we relate to an experience, to be able to respond as our values would desire us to respond to an experience, we have to be present. Otherwise, it's just a stream of reactivity and habit and what others are telling us to think, say, or do. And so we arrive in this moment, in the here and the now of the present moment. We know we wish to do this, We know that there's a systematic way to do it. And we make ourselves available. Starting with the feeling of the room. You can be aware of the room in terms of sounds. Hearing sounds outside versus here in this room. This designated space we call a room. You can be aware of others in the room. 
when you recognize that at this moment, this moment, this now, you are here in this room. And you notice how it feels. How does it feel? Not your views and opinions about it, but how does it feel? Radical shift from views and opinions, stories, reactions, to just how it feels. And then bringing mindfulness front and center that you're using this uh, Buddhist uh, technique of mindfulness to stay present and to stay present in a certain manner that's more filled with curiosity than reactivity. You're willing to know this moment here now and you're more curious than you are reactive with anger or frustration or wanting or running away from it what does it feel like knowing that in this moment you're practicing for all the moments of your life Arriving here, now. And begin to bring attention to the experience of the body. In another meditation, we'll go into exploration of the felt sense of body. But for now, just to acknowledge that there's a felt sense to the body. Awareness of the body here, now. This experience of body, five minutes from now, it'll be different. Five seconds, it will be different. But here, now, the body feels like this. all the attention pouring onto the body experience without going into wanting the body to be other than it is. No need for story. No need for judging or comparing.
You may feel the body as a whole, just this general awareness of body. Or it may be very specific. of the body is like this in this moment, the here and now, the felt sense of body. I'm going to make a request that may seem a little, I don't know, silly or something. But I'm going to ask you to smile, make a smile on your face of appreciation for this very body that you're knowing. And silently say to the body, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As we stay in the body, there can start to develop some continuity of being present. If we notice that continuity of being present, it's often quite renewing in itself. We get refreshed by being present. One of the body sensations that the Buddha taught is awareness of the breath. So we're refining now, if we choose, you may choose to stay with this general experience of the body and just include the breath as one experience. Or you can choose to really focus in on the breath. Your choice. If it turns out to be too much, you can go back to breath and body together. Feeling the experience of the body, responding to breath at the belly, rising and falling the belly.
rising and falling of chest. Lengthening and shortening in the throat area with the inhale and exhale. You may experience it as a tightening and a relaxing. Awareness of the breath at the tip of the nostril. You may feel the whole body receiving the breath. Like the wave coming into shore and receding from the shore. This inhale here now
we begin by arriving wherever we are, that we consciously are being there, that there's a mindfulness, that there is a willing to meet this present moment. And we remember the purpose as to why we're there. We remember the values that are involved in why we're there. And we commit to mindfulness to stay present. So often we are a little forgetful, a little distracted as we arrive at a meeting or on a phone call or sitting down at the dinner table with someone. We're just not really fully present. So it is less tiring to be present than to be distracted. It takes so much energy to be in two places at once. And now we're going to do some walking. I think it's uh, not too bad outside if you want to walk outside or you can walk in the lobby here. I'd ask you not to do the walking meditation upstairs as I was mentioned, there's another retreat up there. So uh, in this walking, most of you have, well, how many people have not had walking instructions? Let's just see. Walking meditation, just only a few. So the idea of walking meditation is to balance, one, the energy buildup during the sitting. So this is a, the monastics really do this quite regularly. They do the sitting, do the walking, sitting, walking. Because you do build up a lot of energy that can get, um, if, if you're in an extended retreat, it, it can really start to be a presence that, that built up of energy. And the walking balances it out. But the walking is also a concentration practice the way we do it in the Theravadan tradition. And so that's a second value of it. And then um, a third value is that you are being present in moving around so that it's more like daily life. And the Buddha said mindfulness in sitting lying down, standing, and moving. So if there's reaching to put the dishes away, you're mindful of it. You're just learning to be more present all the time. And again, that actually brings a kind of relief to the nervous system, not an added burden. So there's a lot of value to this walking. And um, uh, uh, on retreats, residential retreats, one of because uh, I really in- insist on people doing walking meditation, and people will come in in a practice discussion meeting and tell me how much they hate walking meditation. And then I really double down on insisting they do it. And so often, that is the very person who will have a big insight while they're walking. So you can be doing your walking meditation the way you know I will suggest you do it. And out of nowhere, you realize something personal that's an insight or you realize one of the insights that's being presented in the hall just works that way for some reason or another. The idea is to stay present in the body while you're walking. So that's why it's a concentration practice. The concentration is dropped into the lower half of the body, and you feel the hips moving, or the whole leg moving, or the knee bending, or the way the heel lifts off, the ground, the way the leg moves through space. Whatever you're choosing is your object within that lower half of the body to have a felt sense of. 
So for me, and and the, doing the three-part walking, what I do is I, I feel when the leg is lifting, when it's moving, and then when it's touching down again. There's more complicated versions of this where you notice more things, but that's a good beginning. And we can walk at a strolling speed. We can walk at a kind of school zone speed where it's like half of a strolling speed. Or we can do that really slow walking, that zombie-like walking that uh, when people see it the first time they go, (laughs) but it's actually quite interesting to do. You can start out at one speed and then go to a different speed. If you, you, I would nearly say start out strolling and then slow down. If you're going to do it that way, rather than if you're not used to this, starting at the slowest speed, because we'd want to walk at the speed that our mind will accept the experience. So walking really slow, if the mind's really active, there's a rebellion. You're fighting yourself. So stroll. But if your mind is, is more, oh, I'm here, then go a little slower or a little slower still. One of our um, senior teachers, one of my colleagues, that uh, he never does more than a, a strolling. He never really slows down. I like this really slow walking, but he doesn't. He just strolls. And so it's, that's fine. There's not a particular way with that. In fact, in, in, we can't hear, but uh, in, on a, a, a residential retreat, I will often go somewhere and walk really fast once a day just to break the, um, the speed, but I'm really being mindful and walking really fast. So I say that to let, don't get tight about this. Now we're going to stand up and we'll, we'll do a little practice. So move somewhere out into the halls or to the back so that you, have, you can take a couple steps forward or back. So we start with standing. Again, the the Buddha's instruction of being mindful in the four postures. So if you're comfortable having your eyes closed, you can have them closed or you can have them down at a 45 degree angle. And take a breath. If you have your eyes closed and you get a little uncomfortable, you start swaying a lot, open your eyes. And another breath. And just this idea of letting go when you were standing. So now I want you to just, if you will please, just sweep fatigue off of you. Just do a sweeping. Keep breathing. So we are we are letting loose. We're letting loose of the tension from the, the the care providing and all the other things that are causing tension. Okay, now we're there. We are in from the yoga perspective. We're in Tadasana, the mountain pose. We're in the mountain pose. It's the stillness. Not the rigidity that's being emphasized from my years of yoga studying. 
And now we're going to learn what it feels like to just shift weight left and right. So keeping both feet on the ground, shift your weight to the left leg. Come back to center. Shift your weight to the right leg. Come back to center. What you felt, what you what what was registering was the felt experience. And so when we say the felt experience, the felt experience happens with things coming out of all of the senses, including mind. There's a felt sense to every experience we have, but we are not attuned to noticing it. And when we notice it, we have a lot more choice and a lot more ease around experience. So again, shift your weight to the left leg. Now, keeping your weight in the left leg, just raise, keeping your right metatarsal and toes on the floor, just raise your right heel up, down, up, down. That's the felt sense. Keep doing that. That's the felt sense when we're doing the walking meditation. If we're noticing the feet, bring the right heel down, shift back to neutral. That's balance. There's a felt sense of the balance of the weight that you know for yourself, that you know right now. This knowing you know is what builds the confidence. Shift over to the right leg. And now raise the left heel, keeping the toes and metatarsal of that left foot on the ground, up and down a few times. What does it feel like? And bring that left heel down and shift back to neutral. Again, just breathe for a moment. Don't have to hold on to things. can take years to believe that. And now we're going to take this a very small step forward with the right leg and see what you notice as a felt sense. Like for me, first thing I will notice is that I'm taking the weight on my left leg just like we did. So, but whatever, so you, whatever you're noticing, there's a lifting, moving, placing. Or you can say, now we're going to take a step forward with the left. There's a, there's a shifting, moving, placing. Or you may feel just, we're going to walk backwards, there are two steps. You may feel step, step. That's what you're noticing. Depending on how fast you're moving in your walking practice, it would just be right, left, or step, step, or touch, touch, because you're strolling, and that's really all that has the chance to register as a felt sense. Uh, But if you're going more slow, you might feel lifting, placing, lifting, placing. If you're going super slow, you might feel the lifting, moving, placing. And there's all the way up to six-part meditation, uh, movement meditation. So anyway, let's just, again, let's just feel step as one step comes. What did that feel like? And now you take the next step on your own and stay in the felt sense of it. Sometimes you can feel a little shaky because you're becoming aware of the body and that makes you feel like, oh, I'm going to fall down because walking is a bit of losing your balance and regaining it. We're sort of throwing ourselves forward. So just be careful with that. And then step back, step, step. The felt sense. The felt sense is what makes it interesting. 
Otherwise, it's like we're doing homework or something. Okay, so we'll have 20 minutes of walking, and you'll hear the bell in 20 minutes. Um, uh, have some continuity to the walking, so if you can, use the facilities at the beginning or the end so that you don't give yourself time to settle into the walking experience.
one of the phrases that the Buddha would use repeatedly is eipasako, eipasako. And the translation uh, that is used is come see for yourself. Come see for yourself. So he was not uh, presenting a belief system or a um, uh, something that you were supposed to blindly accept, but rather pointing to the nature of things, the nature of this realm of existence and the nature of the human mind-heart. And I found that... Uh, something that I could line up with. Uh, I, I tried a lot of belief system and this, this worked better for me. But it certainly works in terms of learning how to renew ourselves so that you don't have to be interested in uh, Buddhism as a spiritual path to gain a great deal of use from the very practical way of learning how things are and learning how to be with things as they are that that, that this tradition offers. And so in that way, uh, since this is a day of learning as part of the renewing, and for some of you it's a CEU day, then uh, what have you learned? First, you've learned this idea of arriving, how that... Um, uh, People uh, often are not able to uh, arrive at a moment to not be present for an experience. And you've learned that there's this whole idea that there's a process of deliberately, mindfully arriving in the moment, knowing it is here and now. And therefore, to have, have through mindfulness, having a kind of uh, continuity of present moments. This moment is is followed by this moment, that there's a continuity to our experience of being present. So we're in our lives, we're actually showing up for our lives. So this arriving in the here and now, and the felt sense of what that's like. And then the, the whole idea or understanding that felt sense is to be developed. Um, again, for many people that are... Um, um, uh, unable to take care of themselves in some way or harm themselves, the felt sense is part of the problem. Um, uh, I taught in a uh, program in a prison for a number of years, weekly, and um, there was one inmate who had uh, jumped off a building there in the prison, a three-story building, gone up on the roof and jumped off. And um, had been um, you know, in seeing a, when available a prison psychologist or whatever the person was professionally in certification, but with but what was this behavior and, and was this person in danger of doing it again? And so, in a discussion with this person, I, I said, "So, uh, what was your?" Uh, what happened before? Not, not like what happened. What came up? Well, I got there was so and so was done. This policy change occurred, and and at the prison that was just not fair. It wasn't right. It was cruel to us, and I got really mad. I, said, I can understand that. 
So you were angry, right? And you, you know what angry felt like? Oh yeah, I know what the anger felt like. And I said, okay, so then what happened? Well, I said, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm just going to go jump off the, the, the roof of this building. I'm not going to put up with this. I said, I can understand feeling that, that you, you, you don't want to feel powerless. So then what happened? Well, then once I'd said it, of course I had to do it because otherwise I'd be a chicken. I said, I understand that. I have struggled with that myself more than once, particularly when I was young, that if I indicated I was going to do something, even if I knew it was stupid, I went ahead and did it because uh, in, in the language I would use with all of you here was if you're going to walk your talk, you walk all of your talk. You know, that's, that's a young person's view of that or someone who really feels like powerless. That's one way they're regaining power. And I said, so, I, I, uh, we talked back and forth about that a little. I said, you know, that was a thought in your head. And the thought had a, it, it had a feeling with it. You know, it felt like this, that, well, if I don't do this, what's it going to feel like? And uh, you got confused right there. You, you gave up your choice. Because who were you being accountable to? You know, a chicken in whose eyes? Well, and the person said, well, in my eyes. You know, and I said, but in what way? Why, why would that make you a chicken if you go, oh, that was a thought I had, but that was actually not a very smart thought. I'm actually giving up more freedom if I do this. I'm not going to let circumstances define who I am. And the person says, oh, I kind of get that. <laughs> and I said, so that is where that... That point, that's that feeling, having a felt sense of recognizing when you're giving up your power, that's how you'll take care of yourself. And this was the beginning of a f- series of, of short discussions around this. And the person ceased to worry about being a danger to themselves in that way. And it was knowing, it was knowing that moment where there is choice. That, that felt, but in a felt sense way, because we can't trust the mind's thoughts. We, in any given moment, we're capable of thinking anything. So therefore, we learn not to believe. We listen to, but we don't believe a moment's mind thought. We just don't. We don't believe it because the mind can think anything, and it's independent of us. You can intellectually know that, but if you're going to have if you're going to have real choice, it's in the felt sense level. We, it's, it's, we're, the, the, it's too strong. Strong emotions in the mind are too strong to be overcome without a felt sense. This embodied knowing. And that's where we can regain our power. So this, this role of the felt sense, which we will explore throughout today, um, uh, is so useful. Because... Then you, the felt sense is what allows you to know, no, I am really tired. I have to take a day off. I'm, I am at the level of really hurting myself. Or in this case, this, the way my, the, the person I'm taking care of is being disrespectful to me in a way that is really wrong. I've been, I've been upset over various things the way this person's treated me that, that I'm taking care of. But no, this is, re- this is really wrong. It's got a different feeling to it. This needs to stop now. 
that that kind of knowing, the felt sense of knowing, it's a kind of, in, in Buddhism, it's an insight level of knowing. It comes like a, uh, a strike of lightning. It's not deductive, inductive, although you may have done lots of that rational thinking first. But there's some moment that you know, and you know you know. And that's a felt sense of it. And if we don't learn to make that distinction, then we, we've given up a lot of... Uh, power of discernment so we, we've learned about the felt sense we've, we've learned about deliberately choosing to be mindful that this is something that can be developed like a muscle that we can choose to be mindful that there's techniques and we just in coming back to it repetition and we, that we start to learn the power of mindfulness giving us choice giving us the ability to discern Again, giving us the ability to know the felt sense. And this mindfulness being defined as being present for this moment. Present for this moment without objecting to uh, the moment being the way it is. Without being caught into reactivity. The reactivity may be there like, oh, I hate this, I hate this. But the mindfulness is more strong than the reactivity. So we're more curious. We wish to understand. We wish to have choice more than the, the reactivity. So we, we're developing a capacity and we're deliberately developing a capacity. We're having faith in our own capacity to know and have discernment so that we can have choice. We'll see this develops on and on in the course of the day. And then in walking, we've learned more about the felt sense and that, that uh, again, for uh, many of the people you're working with, and in some way walking with them or taking a little walk to give yourself a break. Uh, you can walk. I was walking just in these number of steps here. I guess I was taking five steps or something. You can do walking practice in the hallway of a small apartment that you live in. You can do walking meditation out on the sidewalk, anywhere. You can walk at a speed. Nobody knows you're doing walking meditation, but you do. And therefore, you're coming back to yourself. You're getting grounded. You're getting into the felt sense. We'll learn more about the ground in the next meditation. And, uh, and so you are, you're seeing that, again, that there's a way to regroup, to calm oneself, to, to uh, reconnect so in the concentration retreat that, uh, again, I've been doing that for roughly the same number of years. We, there's, a, there's a level of concentration that's called absorption. That's really these deep, it's in the poly term, it's jhanas. There's these deep absorptions. But there's a level before that that's called access concentration or neighborhood concentration where the mind is collected and unified. And in our concentration retreat, which is only 10 days long, we don't, we don't emphasize the deep absorption. We emphasize the collecting and unifying the mind. Walking meditation is a great way to collect and unify the mind. You, again, in terms of your mindfulness, is much stronger if you've got this collected and unified mind. But your ability to withstand your nervous system has more buoyancy, more absorption when the mind is collected and unified. 
And, and so, again, the value of uh, so many of these practices, including the walking practice. And I introduced the heart as an understanding over and over again, because when we have a clear intention of the heart based on our values, and that, that our, so our values have an intention that's here and now, that again gives, uh, changes, so changes uh, difficult experience, because we're about something larger than whatever stimulant that we're being, you know, <laughs> encountering. That's whether it's criticism or like, oh no, this is way too much. What am I going to do first? Whatever it may be, that uh, I will do as best I am able, because that's my intention. I will, I will meet this moment as best I am able. And last year we spent a lot of time. I will maybe mention this as best I am able again. Uh, in more details, we're certainly going to use it here in a moment. But uh, we spent a lot of time last year studying as best I am able. So we, we're meeting the moment with our values rather than resulting. So it's we're, we're showing up rather than resulting. When people practice meditation, one of the, one of the unskillful things that happen is that you get into resulting rather than uh, being here and now, being available for it to unfold, doing as best as one able, you get into resulting. Surely by now you know that so often you can't control results. But you can choose to live according to your values. You can, you can clarify intention. You can clarify goals. Very hard to control results. So hard. So many good people in our country. And so often, uh, so many things are done that are so uh, destructive to others, so disrespectful to others, so uh, causing misery of various kinds. So not to count on the results, but if we live according to our values, we're going we're gonna to optimize our results and not nearly be as vulnerable to being defeated along the way. So now we're going to look at uh, this possibility of uh, having a relationship to ourselves as a care provider. And that is a healthier relationship. And it is a relationship where we let loose of the tendency of the mind to judge to compare, and to fix. So we're going to be invited to take vows just for today where you renounce those mind activities of judging and comparing and fixing as best you're able. So judging is labeling yourself or someone else as good or bad or a... a, um, it could be an environment where you're only your your whole relationship to that environment is you just close down into the badness of that environment, rather than seeing it as in its wholeness. And because when we just close down, we don't see opportunities within this environment. But we're often stuck in it anyway, whether it's a hospital room or a, you know someone being confined at home to their bed, or whether it's a client that's very difficult in many ways, and on and on and on, so many different 
was that we shut down or by labeling something good or bad. The, uh, we can label it as pleasant or unpleasant. That's true enough for us, but not good or bad in the same way. And then uh, comparing is better than, worse than. So my meditation, my second meditation was better than my first. Was it? Maybe you were, it was more pleasant. Maybe you were more calm. But maybe building the muscle of collecting and unifying the mind was much more being developed in that first meditation when it was so hard to stay present. Very hard to know. Very hard to know. It's, it's also hard to know in many instances what's good fortune and bad fortune. So we, we learn to let loose of, of these kinds of comparisons. So letting loose of judging, letting loose of comparison. And then fixing mind is that state of mind when instead of meeting the moment and going, oh, the moment's like this, we go, oh, I don't like this. And we immediately go to, I'm going to fix it. So you're in your meditation, you can be sitting there, you close your eyes, and your, your body's hurting. So you really, if I can just fix my body, then I can meditate. Or uh, you have this thought about your life, and, and you've just got to have these thoughts about fixing the life. Now, me, you may have had those same thoughts a hundred times already, but the appeal of, of the fixing thought is such a reward in itself that we just do it again and again, this kind of compulsive, obsessive thinking about things. I mean, it's just a mind activity of fixing that is, uh, that is stimulating to the mind in a way that uh, uh, can be very addictive but not necessarily very effective in a particular situation. It's not that we don't want to consider and reflect and change things, it's the compulsive of the fixing mind that we're dealing with. So we can, first we want to be with the, to the point that we know the felt sense of this is the mature kind of mindfulness. We, we are aware of what's arising. We stay with it long enough to really have a feel for it. And we do drop into the felt sense of it and we take it impersonally. Then we can have a fixing thought. But if we have a fixing thought at the very first uh, instance of encountering that, that can be out of habit. We're not really, we're not at all really assessing how we feel at the moment. It's habit or it's what others have told us to do in that situation. So we're just, we're just little trained monkeys, you know, just responding as, as we've been trained in our stimulant to do. So we're learning to drop in. So that's fixing mind. So what we're going to do, I will say a line out loud, and it'll be in three parts, four parts, whatever it is. And then at each stage, you say back to me. And so it's, this is like just for today, you're test driving an automobile. It's like a new vehicle for your life. You're just trying it out for a day. And at the end of the day, I'll release you from these vows and you can go on back to doing as much judging and comparing and fixing as you want. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Just pausing for a moment. And Am I willing to see for myself what this would feel like? Because this is an A.E. Pasako moment.
for the duration of this day, I renounce judging mind as best I am able. For the duration of this day, I renounce comparing mind as best I am able. For the duration of this day, I renounce fixing mind as best I am able. Now you're a lot safer from yourself. <laughs> it's really true. And if we were all talking back and forth, everybody else would be safer from you too. <laughs> and that's true for each of us. And so um, uh, at the end of the day, we'll, we'll see about how to utilize this a little more in our time together. So now we're going to do a um, we're going to do another meditation, and this meditation is about the body, and there's going to be different parts of it. But uh, we so the, with the first one, we were just arriving in the room by arriving first in the space, which can include hearing or inequality in the space, the feeling people around you. This one we're arriving, and then we, so we went to body and we went to breath. Breath became our object of meditation to collect and unify the mind. But we were still arriving. That was, that was our interest. Here we've arrived, and now we're going to explore how to really find refuge in the body. Part of that will be finding the ground of the body being grounded. Briefly arriving in the room, through sound, through the felt sense of those around you. wish to be mindful, you arrive here and now through your mindfulness. You arrive in the here and now through your intention as to how you wish to treat yourself. So the intention of being available. And then you can arrive in the moment through your goals. Oh, I want this to be a day of renewal. I want this to be a day of learning. Whatever your goals for the day are. Intention is this very moment. Goals are always in the future. 
And now turning to the body. Mindfulness and intention are slightly different mental activities. Attention is the spotlight, the directing of the knowing capacity to a certain experience. Mindfulness is how we are present with what is being known. So we're directing attention, which in Buddhist psychology is called vitaka vachara, which is kind of aiming the attention, the capacity of attention, and vachara, which is sustaining attention. Different energies involved in that directing or aiming versus the sustaining, at least in my experience. So the body. Now you may automatically go to the breath. That's fine. Just stay with the breath and the body if that's true. Now drop your attention to the lower half of the body just as you did in the walking meditation. And start to feel the pelvis, the bones of the pelvis sitting on the chair or the cushion. This is the earth element. Feel through the flesh of the upper legs, the soft tissue of the upper legs, to the bones of the upper leg. the thigh bones. Hard, firm, heavy. This is the earth element. And again with the knees and the two lower leg bones in each leg. Again, that firmness, that hardness, earth element, earth element. And then with the ankles and the feet and the toes, so many bones, so much cartilage. Earth element, earth element.
And now the invitation is to let the earth element in the body rest on Mother Earth. This relationship we call gravity, so reliable, but we so override it by hovering, not quite letting things rest, or pushing down as though somehow we're going to float away. Just let the earth element rest on Mother Earth. In Zen, it's referred to as sitting in the bones. You may notice it as just a sense of ease in the body, or you may feel more breath in the abdomen, or the spine responds to the breath more, particularly that lower spine, as you just let the earth element rest on earth. And now doing the same thing with the upper body, starting with the shoulders and the humerus bone, that upper arm bone. Earth element, earth element. Same with the elbow and the two bones in the forearm. All the bones, so many bones in the wrist, hands, fingers. And let this earth element also rest on earth. The weight is underside. It's not that it has to touch earth. It's that you are trusting that you don't have to hold against or push into or hover. And again, you may feel the spine able to respond to breath in a different way. Or there may be less tension in the neck or in the jaw or nothing may have occurred that's that visible, that felt sense. But nonetheless, there's a stillness as the earth element rests on earth. The mind becomes more still. Notice that the mind can collect and unify around the stillness because there is a ground. The body is resting on ground. There's an ease to this stillness. Invite the heart 
to open in the stillness. Invite aliveness, the sense of a live presence to be in the stillness of this body grounded through the earth element. So attention drops into the heart area. Everything's still, 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 still. And the heart opens. This heart quality present. Lots of secondary thoughts can arise when the heart opens this way. We may want to lay before it our pain, our confusion. When the mind wanders, just gently bring it back to feeling the earth element, feeling the sense of groundedness as best you're able, not judging since you've renounced that, not comparing since you've renounced that, not fixing, available to a stronger sense of this but not demanding a change.
For these last few minutes, let's all of us focus on the breath. So again, we're moving the spotlight of attention. Upandita used to say pouring attention onto the experience, in this instance of breath. And then he would talk about sustaining attention. It's like rubbing something with your mind. That you're polishing it, getting it more clear, more clean. But now notice that the earth element, which was characterized by stillness, this is the wind element. It's characterized by movement. So really what we're following is not the breath, but the wind element. What is the felt sense in your body right now for this wind element? Like is the wind element strong in you or faint right now? Is it fast or slow? Staying with the ever-changing experience of breath. It's trickier to do, but the movement can make it interesting. Whether going in close and feeling the belly, the chest, or the nostrils, or staying further away, or whether it's faint or hard, the fact that it's a difficult thing to follow at times makes it more interesting, not less. Relax the attention. Let the experience come to you. This is a general rule being applied to the breath. You're not grabbing hold of the breath. No tension.
So in following the breath, we are finding ground. Ground for what? Ground for our attention. Being mindful of something, but being grounded. Grounded is calm, here, now, collected around a moving object. As we learn to do that, when we're in the midst of our care providing or anything else that's moving around a lot, our nervous system is more attuned to moving with moving objects. And so that the attention stays still even though the objects are moving. So you're, you're in a situation where you're multitasking. Your attention and what you're about is steady like this. And then the objects that you think you have to focus on come in and out of that grounded attention. This is not a simple teaching right here. But it is one to look at because your, uh, your emotional re- reactions and responses are coming and going too. And they may be throwing you off, maybe a lot harder to deal with. But if there's this steadiness of attention with all these moving objects, then you're receiving the experiences. So, part of that is learning to notice again through the felt sense ultimately the difference between when you're in a reactive mind state and in a responsive mind state. A reactive mind state one has very little choice. One is just going with the emotional feeling or the habit or what others have told you to do. You're just reacting. There's not really a felt sense. There's not a ground. You're just reacting. You're leaning over on it. You're too much on it. Or you're too much pulled into all your own reactivity. Or both at the same time. Opposite the reactive mind state is a responsive mind state. A responsive mind state has choice. That's how you know you're in a responsive mind state. It's because you feel your choice. And your choice, again, from our tradition is based on your values, what really matters in this situation. So someone uh, that you're taking care of in some way uh, is hurtful to you in a given moment. A, A reactive mind state is likely to be unskillful in that. You either turn on yourself, you turn on them, you have to take this whole thing in your body in a way that's just violent to the body. A responsive mind state goes, oh, my patient, my parent, my child, my significant other, my mother, whomever it is, is is in a reactive mind state. I don't want to be reactive to reactivity. That's not my value. My freedom is being true to my values. My sense of well-being that is beyond conditions is being true to my values, being grounded in my values. So we cultivate this uh, mindful attention in a way that allows us to have this uh, buoyancy, this being able to uh, roll with uh, the the ups and downs because we are, we are in this responsive state. We know what we're about. 
that the world's not going the way we want it to go is unpleasant. And we see that it's costing us something maybe, but we don't get pulled into, we don't get defined by that. This is characterizing the moment. It's characterizing our experience, but it's not defining our experience. In my working with people and changing transitions, the other thing I do, this is one of the, there's like oh, a dozen key teachings, and this is one of the key teachings about the difference between being defined versus characterized by experience. If you learn this, you will, f- uh, it's just like automatic gain and sense of well-being. If you really learn how to move from being defined by things that are unpleasant or scary or uh, difficult to simply having it characterize the mind, that your sense of well-being will increase in some sort of geometric way, not arithmetic. It's not like you'll get, if it's three plus three, it's more like uh, three times three. It's a, it's a, it's a, a dramatic difference. And it's what allows us to stay true to our intention from a Buddhist point of view, that everything is about intention. So mindfulness and intention go together. We, we're being mindful of what? Our values. What are our, how are our values expressed? By intention. An intention in the mind to live according to our values. So we, can, we, can, uh, we have compassion. We have this value of having compassion for people that are having difficulty. In this given moment, because we're tired, because they're not, they're being very difficult. We don't have a lot of compassion. So in this moment, our mind's characterized by a lack of compassion. But we're not confused by that. We know it's a temporary mind moment. And we rest back. We're grounded in what we know. That ground, the sense of like the, what you felt in the body with the earth element. That same felt sense can be there in this very um, uh, much more ephemeral feeling when you're involved in your care providing. You know what you're about. You're grounded in your intention. At this moment, as best I am able, isn't all that great. I am definitely not liking this. It's unpleasant and I'm not liking it. That's the truth. It's characterizing the moment, but it's not an identity. When we're defined, it's an identity. It's identity. When it's an identity, we cling, it becomes habit, it becomes narrow, we're reactive, we have to carry it around with us. When we're characterized, it's one more thing coming and going, as opposed to thinking our mind's always supposed to be so pure and light and just goodness, goodness, goodness. It's not true. That's not what happens. Mind's capable of thinking anything, as I was telling that story about the inmate, the same thing. We, but, but this, we can really learn to do this. And when we understand that, we can also then start to titrate when it's traumatizing to us, or we can teach someone that we're working with to be able to move attention away from that which is characterizing them so intensely, which pulls them into identifying with it, to look out at the sky, the grounds, 
and back. See the green is the green. What kind of green is that green? You know, we're we're interested in we we learn to move attention away from something that's pulling us down in the whirlpool, and then we come back to it to be with it once we've gained some degree of 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 composure that allows us to be with without becoming defined by even though we may still be characterized by the the unpleasantness of it or the unfairness of it or the largeness of what's being called for from us we are not we are not we're not defined by this goes so far as to be defeated and not being defined by defeat I have had the experience of not being able to help people that I really care about. I couldn't help them. And uh, I I was characterized by sadness, a sense of loss, a sense of my inadequacy for the situation. But I was not defined by. One time the Dalai Lama was asked about regret. And he says, oh yeah, I have regret. And the person that was interviewing him said, you do? Because <laughs> somehow the Dalai Lama was supposed to be this person who didn't have any regret. Some perfect person, once again. Dangerous, that kind of thinking. Watch out for it. And uh, he said, no, I have regret. He said, for instance, um, uh, I told this monk who came to see me, who had a wonderful practice and whom I respected his practice more than mine, but he wanted to do this certain kind of practice. And I said, oh, you're too old to do that. The next lifetime, you'll do that, but not now. It's it's because it takes too long to develop. I so understand what he meant by that, by the way. And and, and, uh, he said, but the monk, the way the monk heard that and took that, he went out and killed himself so that he could be reborn to do the practice. And the Dalai Lama said, I have regret about that, but it is, does not set heavy on me. It doesn't, it doesn't affect the interaction with you now or the people anytime I'm interacting, but it's still regret. That's being characterized rather than defined. Does this make sense in some way? So we're going to do one more meditation and then we're going to have some, um, uh, some Q&A to, to, right before lunch, some questions and answer around what you've been exposed to this morning. Uh, but again, I'm going to ask you to stand up first and I'm going to guide you in a more specific movement. And so you have to find a space in the room where you can rock back and forth, where you can move your hips and your arms a little and so forth. And you may have to spread out to the back. So in meditation, uh, the transition, oftentimes our mindfulness gets lost in transition. So uh, that's an opportunity, since you know this is likely to happen, when you start to get up out of the uh, chair or cushion, you, you, you become mindful, oh, transition, transition, transition. And you watch to see what you do. What does your mind do in this transition? You're not saying, okay, now mind, you've got to do this. But you see, what does the mind do? And you can sometimes watch and the mind will start already grabbing for something. Like, oh, I'm glad we're doing this and I want to get my body. Like, oh, 
Now we're going to do something different. I wonder what that'll be. So we, we stay interested in, in a way of continuity with the experience. Not so much controlling. Later on, we're more and more able to choose. But first, the being with. And the being with allows us to see what's skillful and what's not. And therefore, that choosing seems much more natural. That's why it's a gradual path for most of us. Let the legs bend and straighten, not the knees. Don't think about the knees releasing the, the hip bones in the acetabulum where it's held there and releasing at the ankles. So you're just, the knees just get out of the way, but there's no putting on the brakes at the back of the knees or the side of the knees, which is not a healthy thing. And the next time that the legs are bent, start to circle the hips in one direction. How many circles do you feel in your body? The bottoms of the feet are circling, right? The hips are circling. The legs are circling. But so are the hands and the elbows. And pause and then straighten the legs and just sort of rub around the knees and on the thighs. And then stand up and do a little pounding on the butt and the lower back. Are you holding your breath? And what value are you getting from holding the breath? Might it be possible to not hold the breath? And bend the knees again and circle in the other direction. And if you don't know what the other direction is, start circling and it's the opposite of that. And pause. And this time I'm going to have you stay bent over. You can have the legs bent as much as you like. But if you have high blood pressure or uh, some sort of a heart condition and shouldn't be doing this, just wait for us and we'll join you very shortly. So, And you can move your head and neck and standing if that's what you're doing. But here we're letting gravity create a kind of um, uh, traction for our neck. And we're just slowly nodding the head. Yes, you can bend your knees as much as you like or you can have the legs relatively straight. So nodding yes with the head and neck. Relax that jaw, please. And pause. And now a slight no. Nodding the head no. Right and left. And pause. And now circle the head and neck. Very gently, very slowly. Come up into standing anytime you need to. And pause. And circle the head and neck in the other way. And pause. And now the arms to and fro. Front and back. And pause. And now circle the shoulders in towards you. The arms will come with the shoulders circling. And pause. And now press down with your feet. Pull your belly button back to the spine. Pressing down on the floor. Let your legs first straighten. Chin is still on the chest. Then the belly button area straightens. Then the breastbone area. And at last the chin and neck up. 
Take the feet apart and start to turn right and left. Chin, breastbone, pubic bone. So you're not taking your head and neck way beyond the core of your body. It's a unified movement. Are we back to holding the breath for some reason? Let the legs be a little bent. Next time you go to the right, stay to the right. I'm going to be opposite you because of where I am in the room. And now let the head come to the center and leave the body where it is. Head back to the right. Head to center. Head back to the right. And now everything starts to move again. The next time you go to the left, stay to the left. And now head to center. Head back to the left. Now, as your head comes to center, take your eyes left. Bring the head back to the left. Eyes go right. Head center, eyes left. Head to the left, eyes to the center. And now let everything go again. And pause and bring the legs a little more underneath you. And arms up just to chest level. Up and down. You're you're invoking the energy from the bottoms of your feet up. Different traditions have different places on the feet as to where that energy is coming from. I like the inner heel point, the front inner heel point. A little faster. Not higher, faster. And a little faster still. And pause, let the arms come to a natural stop, not forcing them to stop. Put your left foot in front of the right foot. And it's at an angle, so your right foot's turned out at an angle that's comfortable for you because we're going to be bending and straightening the legs. So now row forward and row back. The upper body is not helping out. It's not leaning forward to get you go forward. Although I once saw a woman with a tremendous uh, condition, difficult condition around walking, and she had turned her torso into a leg. And it was so beautiful to watch her walk. I just, I mean, it, was, it brought tears to the eye. It was just because she would throw her leg forward to be able to move. And she was still mobile and active in life. She had her car rigged up so they would, there's these pulleys would put everything. She, she was not being defeated by her condition. So inspiring. Anyway, back to our situation. We're rowing forward. With, we're upright. We can see the world. Our heart's available to the world. Forward and back. When we're forward, the back leg is straight. When we come back, the back leg is bent. And the front leg, of course, just the opposite. And now arms up and down. So the arms come forward just as our leg reaches the bend it's going to make. So this moment forward is our here and now for our practice. Here. Now. Yes. 
Not now. No. I need help. That is not my job. The here and now, the being able to claim to stay in the body as the mind moves and pause and switch legs. And you adjust the legs, they're not necessarily going to be the same from one side to the other. So starting with just the legs moving, so it's the hara, the Tanya and all this, these different ways of talking about where our energy center is in the body. It's going forward and back. It's as though there was this big energy flow, this kind of spotlight of energy going way behind us, going way in front of us. We're learning to stay present, staying upright and present and letting energy move through our body. Breathing, breathing. Relaxing, not holding the shoulders up, not girding. We know where we're going, but we're not started yet. So we leave our arms alone. No need to do anticipatory movement. We do so much of that when there's a lot of pressure. We create body postures that are mirroring our lack of coherence in responding to the situation. And now the arms. Here. Now. Will you please. Not appropriate. And gradually. That here and now moment. When we bring all of our attention. So we're collecting and unifying the attention in a given moment, once we've achieved that, even as we move away from it, it starts to be a presence. So it's still out there that we're coming to, but even if we move away, we've not left it because it's become part of us. We're able to carry that feeling. And pause. Again, let the legs and arms come to a natural thing. And now uh, the arms come up. I'm sorry, I changed my mind. Back down. Shoulders up. Shoulders down. Shoulders up, forward, down, back, up, forward, down, back, forward. Aha, got ahead of me. So much for living in the moment, huh? Up, back, down, Forward, up, back, down. And now let both shoulders raise and leave the left shoulder up as you let the right shoulder go down. Take the right shoulder up and lower the left shoulder. Do you see how much felt sense you can gain from this? Left shoulder up. Now focus all your attention. The both shoulders are up. Focus all your attention on the right elbow and lower your right elbow, which will mean lowering the shoulder too. But keep your attention on the elbow. And now raise the elbow by raising the right shoulder. Now focus on the left elbow. And from the left elbow going down, the shoulder comes down. 
And then you can feel the left elbow being raised by raising the left shoulder. Now take the right fingers, the fingers in the right hand, down, 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 and the shoulder comes with it. Raise the right shoulder and the fingers come up all magically. Left fingers, the hands, the finger, left hand fingers, down, down, down. Raise the left shoulder up. And now the right shoulder blade, down, 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 down. Such a relief. Right shoulder blade up, 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 up. Left shoulder blade, down, 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 down. Left shoulder blade, up, 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 up. And now let both shoulder blades go down slowly, 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 slowly. Both shoulder blades up, up, up. Both shoulder blades down, down, down. And now both shoulder blades up halfway and up and down and drop them fast. (sighs) Let that breath out. (sighs) So one of the things that you discover in meditation is that there's holding in the body that you don't have any idea you're holding. I can remember one time, just a couple of years ago, I'd started thinking about, well, am I holding this part of my chest? And I was going, no, I, I would feel it if I was holding. And I kept probing at it over a number of weeks. And one day, it just dropped. I had held it for so long that there was no sense of the effort involved. That's how habitual we can make our experience where we lose a felt sense. So this, 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 the way I'm breaking things down is to help you have that felt sense. Now, arms out to the side. So they're floating out to the side as though there were balloons in your armpits. But now that they're out to the sides, turn the palms over and using your upper arms, but leaving the shoulders down, raise the arms up as best you're able. So, like, I broke my right shoulder in August. So, not August, but in June. So, mine's limited. So, you can have just one arm up if you prefer at a time. You can have the elbows bent. But we're going to start making a spiraling circle with just a finger. So, we're inviting energy to travel through the whole body just from this one finger's movement. And now we add the wrists. So, now there's a wrist and finger creating that same movement. And then we add the elbow, hard for me in my right arm. Uh, The elbow and the wrist and the finger are making the movement. And now maybe we can start to feel it in that left leg on the diagonal of the body. Maybe not at the beginning. And now the shoulder, elbow, wrist, and finger. So that if we really were to be, uh, and I'm not wanting you to do this. I'm going to show you, don't do this. But you would go really way out in all of this. And your whole body would have to move because... So right now we're just holding it here because of all of us. And stop. And now you can rest that arm if you like by your side and start one finger in the other hand. Now elbow, I'm sorry, wrist and finger. And now elbow, wrist and finger. And again, that diagonal into the right leg. And now the shoulder, elbow, wrist and finger. And again, that movement could get really big if you were doing this on your own. And it's moving through. And now both arms join in with those four spiraling things. And so like you're in two spirals. You're in a double spiral 
like a, it's like an energy vortex that if you've ever felt that in a land somewhere, some people say they don't exist, <laughs> and stop, and now over to one side, over to the other side, back to center and over to the other side, back to center and to the other side, come back up. And now we're going to be doing a little exercise here. This is our uh, holy roller moment in, in, in the Dharma where we're going to shake our arms. We're going to let our, our chest and our butt shake, legs shake. And we're going to in a moment be dropping our arms. So you may need, those of you who are still in the aisle, not in the aisle, but in the chairs where the chairs are, be careful that you don't hit the chair with your hand. So then you just drop it off. And up again, more vigorously. And drop it. And this time, think of something that you need to drop for your healing, for your renewal today. So really picture something. It's a relationship or an attitude or a particular uh, dislike of one of your tasks or the feeling of burnout, whatever it may be. You're shaking that up, that relationship. You're shaking it off your body. You're shaking it out of your nervous system. More shaking, more. And then drop the whole thing. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. just tell them about what it's really like to come to a Buddhist meditation <laughs> and this meditation, we're going to be uh, observing pleasant and unpleasant and seeing its power to affect how we feel. Something can be just unpleasant, but we make it a whole world. And it's just unpleasant. It is unpleasant, but it's just unpleasant. This is, again such a freedom when we really can relate to our experience in this way. This is no theoretical thing. This is, again, I said to you, I'm speaking adult to adult. In in, uh, Buddhist uh, uh, it's called Vedana and it's it's referred to as the feeling tone. It's like the little flavoring that every moment's got a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. The neutral Unless we're trained to, we don't notice almost always. So what we tend to notice is pleasant or unpleasant. And we have a bias, a survival bias, to the unpleasant. Because if it's unpleasant, it could affect our survival. So our whole, you know, uh, 10 million years, whatever number of years we've, we've been in some form, <laughs> that, we've, uh, that uh, we, everything's been conditioned towards a negative bias. What could be going wrong here that would cause me not to survive? So the, the unpleasant is particularly uh, um, uh, difficult in that level, on the, just the sheer nervous system level. The pleasant is tricky and challenging because in, uh, particularly in our society, which is so uh, individual gets something and it's what I'm getting, it's what's pleasant for me, is how I measure my well-being, which is a big misperception from Buddhist psychology uh, that we measure by getting the things we want. So um, 
uh, th- that's, that can entangle our ego in a way. So we're just, right now, we're, not, we're, 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 we're just discerning, can I notice pleasant and unpleasant? And neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So again, arrive in this moment, here and now. Knowing you're in this room, knowing what you're doing, knowing why you're doing it in terms of your own healing, your own renewal, having this intention of an open mind, a willing to be with, having the heart open in its own slow choosing of time and place. And the mindfulness is front and center as you focus on the body. Just noticing the body in this general way. After that movement, your very moment, this very moment of experience of the body, is it pleasant or unpleasant? So for myself, it's overall quite pleasant. There's kind of a, like a wave of pleasant, like a, almost like a taste uh, that's going through the body of pleasant. And yet those areas that are sore in me are there and they're letting themselves be known and they're unpleasant. So I could focus on the unpleasant and it would build maybe in my neck, right at the top of my uh, uh, skull there at the um, first vertebrae. Or I can focus on this wave, this sense of ease, that again has almost a taste-like sense of pleasant. So what's true for you? The idea is one of mindfully equanimous relationship to the pleasant and unpleasant. Ironically, as we're mindful of the unpleasant, it's less unpleasant because we don't contract into it in the same way. When we're mindful of the pleasant, it tends to stay longer because our mind doesn't go wandering off thinking, oh, I've got to do more of this. I should go find some movement. I'll ask him what that movement was. All of which takes us away from the pleasant. So there's more gain by far in my experience of being present for the Vedna, the flavoring, the not. This is the second of the four foundations of mindfulness. The first being the body. And now the pleasant and unpleasant. Let the breath come in. Don't hold the breath out. And now really focusing on the breath. Just notice, is the inhale pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral?
And now the exhale is it pleasant? This particular exhale, each one's different. Is it pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant? And now notice the entire cycle, the complete breath. See how it can change, pleasant and unpleasant, many times in the process, or one can be just really predominant for the whole time. Does being aware of pleasant and unpleasant of the breath makes your attention more stable, less wandering mind, or not? Can you be aware of pleasant and unpleasant without commenting on it, without judging it, comparing it, or fixing it? or even having a view or opinion about it. It just is. This inhale is like this. So you embrace it just as it is. This exhale is just like this. Now notice when the mind is pulled away by a thought or by some other physical sensation. Thought may be planning, thinking, remembering. It may be a thought of judging or comparing or fixing. Was it pleasant or unpleasant that made it strong enough to pull you off 
So you may have had this thought come up about something you've got to do and you don't quite know how to do it. And that thought was unpleasant and that's what brought your attention to it. But then when you start thinking about solutions, even though you already know all the possible solutions, but just thinking about them is pleasant. And so therefore you've got this anxiety uh, which is unpleasant and then this thinking about it which brings minor relief. And it's like you're caught in an eddy. And so your mind comes to it over and over again. But you can just say, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant. Oh, then thinking pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. And then return to the breath. Recognize but not identify with. Recognize but not defined by. Staying with the breath except when it's pulled away automatically. The breath again can be breath in the body or just breath on breath. One is not preferable in my view. Let it happen naturally. If you feel relatively safe in this moment of your meditation, I invite you to let the heart open to the breathing so your heart is open, vulnerable, somewhat, somewhat unguarded, So the heart is being known as part of the breathing. If you've chosen to do this, you may not feel anything You might feel more stillness. You might feel a kind of invigoration. You might find a quiet. 
It may be more sacred feeling, this beautiful breath feeling it's described. A wave of relief might go through the body. But you could also feel a kind of sadness that, oh, I didn't know that sadness was there and it's what leaves. Not holding on to anything. Being available. If you're keeping the heart open and the breath, when your mind's pulled to some other experience, particularly thinking experience, remembering, planning, what happens to that feeling of the heart being open? Then return to the breath.
Bringing awareness of the arising of pleasant and unpleasant is again part of the movement towards choice and towards freedom, towards well-being, towards being able to have well-being that is independent of conditions. The happiness of the Buddha is a happiness that is independent of conditions. It doesn't mean that the Buddha had a bad back. He would often at the end of the day say to Ananda Sariputta, you need to teach, I need to rest. But his equanimity, his sense of well-being was not uh, defined by that bad back. He died of food poisoning. But again, there was equanimity and peace around his death. He was teaching to his sort of last breath in that way. And, and so our experience, it's not that we're supposed to be, we're not super emotional people. That is that we're totally above feeling the drag of our lives that's difficult. It's just that the, how we're relating to that difficulty. And it's still difficult. And we need breaks from it. And it can get to us, even if we don't get identified with it. If it's too much, at t- and times, it will then get us. So, a distinction for you. The difference between pressure and stress as I would know it. Pressure is the amount of work we have to do times that amount of t- the, that amount of time we have to do it in. If it's a little time, that creates more pressure if it's a lot of work. If there's more time, there's less pressure. Uh, times how difficult that work is. If it's really difficult, hard to do, and you've got to really focus, that, uh, all these different things that make up pressure. In our society, because being able to feel as though it, you, it's, you have stress in your life means that what you're doing is important in some way, we have all gone to saying, oh, I've got so much stress, I feel so much stress right now. I, that's not easy for me to hear people say that because I want to say to them, no, what you're feeling is pressure. Pressure is part of this realm of being. You're going to be under a lot of pressure at various times. Just as a wagon, if you're putting a load on a wagon, it's a certain amount of pressure. And if it's too much, it starts to strain the fabric of that wagon. If it's a wooden wagon, the wood starts to split a little, the wheels can't take it, and so forth. That's, so a certain amount of pressure becomes strain and that becomes stress, okay? You can have a stress fracture, for instance, and so forth. But w- until that point, it's just pressure. What we usually talk about as stress is the mind's reaction to pressure. It is identifying and becoming reactive to the pressure in, a, in such a way that the whole nervous system is getting swept into a reactive state. And that is stressful. So the stress can be way disproportional to the amount of pressure. There's this much pressure, but there's this much stress. Because the mind can multiply anything. That is part of the, the 
reality of dukkha. So it's not a fair way to say this exactly. It's not exact math. But uh, the, the amount of, if you're having physical pain and say it's four units of physical pain, if you're having a dukkha response, you're reacting to, oh, no, this shouldn't be happening to me. It's someone's fault. Oh, I'm so stupid. And you're having all this stress kind of reaction. It's like, it's like five units of stress or dukkha pain. So the net effect of the amount of pain you have emotionally is 20. It's not four plus five. It's 20 amounts. It's 20 units of, of dukkha, 20 units of physical pain, if that's what it is, or emotional pain. So learning to uh, distinguish between your, the pressure you feel and stress. Are you, are you, have you been so traumatized by doing this work that you go into a, a, a really a post, your, your PTSD in relation to it? You're really, it, you're, you're being traumatized just by having the test to be done. You can really change that by the mindfulness and the compassion. And then, you know, discernment that says, well, what's wise here? You're discerning. But, it, but if you're in a stress, if you're always in stress, first of all, it's always messing up all these chemistries, chemical things in our body, as we know. But it also makes thinking very unclear. And it is, uh, it is not good for uh, intuition at all. Intuition does better when there's some space around it. Uh, and when I uh, used to do lots of leadership trainings for leaders, I don't do very much of that anymore. But um, they would say, they, would, they all tended to think they were quite smart. But what they would ask me over and over again is, well, how do you get more intuition? And I would talk to them about the way I'm talking with you, is that if, if you don't grab hold if you have more space around the experience, if you don't interpret the experience, but you stay with what it's actually feeling like, the felt sense rather than your view and opinion about it, you're judging, you're comparing, or you're fixing of it, then intuition has more space. Psyche, if you can, I talk of psyche as a she, you don't have to do that, I do. But she, psyche, psyche needs some room in there and needs to know that she's being called forth to like give you some wild intuition that was not obvious at all when you were first dealing with the problem. Oh, I could ask so-and-so to do this. Actually, we don't have to do all of that. This is the only part that's critical. Where did that knowing come from? Intuition, whatever intuition is. So with all of this as a context, we've now covered even more ground than we had when I first reviewed what we've learned, what we are learning. Uh, your questions and comments, and we're going to be using microphones, and our volunteers are going to be doing this. And um, so if we can start, do you want, to, are you going to deliver the mics to them? Okay, so there's two over here. I want to, while you're walking over there, I really want to thank the volunteers and what was said this morning about how important volunteers are to Spirit Rock. It is. So you be a volunteer. <laughs> thank you so much. I've been to these retreats many times and today it feels the most helpful. I want to relate an experience I had um, <laughs> and then I invite your comments. I was traveling on vacation with a family member who has brain damage and I'm a primary caregiver for this person. 
And on the trip, I noticed I was getting drowsy and I should rest a bit before driving on safely. So I explained this, I thought, reasonably and carefully to my passenger, my family member, and I explained, I'm going to pull over now to the side of the road and I'm going to close my eyes because I need to take a 10-minute nap so we can drive on safely. What I didn't realize that I was asking this person, I was demanding of this person something that they couldn't deliver to me. Uh, This person didn't have the capacity to remain quiet and still so that I could get my rest. I was very fixed on the idea of what I needed, and I needed peace and quiet, and so on and so on. And it built up the energy of frustration, built up in me. I could feel my heart pounding, my temperature was changing, I was getting very angry with this person for not giving me what seemed like a reasonable... (laughs) not meeting my demands, my needs, Mm -hmm. sorry, Mm -hmm. my needs. And uh, somewhere in there, a very clear direction came. It was like the CHP, get out of the car. So I got out of the car and started to take a few steps. And the view of the sea and the air, I started just inhaling, you know, to dispel this energy that was built up, I started to inhale this beautiful air and I no longer needed the nap that I was so attached to getting and I just felt so completely refreshed and renewed. And so I created for myself because of how I thought the solution should be and then this other idea stepped in and I just wanted to share that with you. And uh, I'd like to hear your comments about that. Thank you. So that's a thank you for uh, bringing it in. That was a moment when you went from reactive mind state to responsive mind state, where you ceased to be defined by the unpleasantness, which was, by the way, legitimate in terms of your need, and you were trying to be caring, responsible for your the person that with the brain injury and yourself. So you like your motives were good, your goals were good, but that when that but when when we're thwarted, even though we have wholesome goals, our means can become very unskillful when we're in a reactive mind state. That does not make us a bad person, and it's 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 not better than or worse than. It's just the way it is in that moment. But then, as, as you, if you just watch that, that's what's going on. You see in the movie of it rather than believing it. You know it's a story. It's just a mind making up a story. Although it's based on, again, these wholesome things. Then, then there was room for another, for your intuition to say, oh, there's another way here. And so you went out and it turned out to be that was true. You might have gone out of the car and it not been enough. But getting out of the car, you were still indicating your, uh, that, that you, your, uh, openness to other possibility. So in that, then if the, if the car had not brought the renewal, it might have given you more clarity about, okay, I'm going to have to do this and that, keep the window open or something, because, you know, I, I'm going to have to do something, but I'm going to have to go on without this. So again, you would have the, the same clarity. You, it doesn't always work as magical as it did that time, but it's great when it does. But that, but that direction is the only wholesome way to go. That's the only way that allows all the possibilities. Because telling that person they must be quiet is, uh, uh, 
only going to agitate them more. And really, it's asking, and it would be asking them, it's setting them up for failure, maybe of the worst kind. Now, it might wake you up at some point and you start being ashamed of yourself. So maybe that would have been, you know, again, this judging it, good and bad and all of that is, but always seeing what's possible. And, and, and uh, as best I am able, I'm going to do what's skillful. And I trust that. I trust my intention here. And I trust that I can recognize when my motives are mixed or my motives have gotten completely negative. And then, again, we learn from that. And sometimes we're able to interrupt it. And sometimes it's the learning has to happen later. We got so contracted that we really acted unskillful and we have to live with the consequences of that particular one. But we learn from it. We go, that too is part of life. So that it's not that it always works out well or we always, it's not always happy ending in the moment, but it's the arc of practice over time brings this sense of well-being so that we're able to have well-being even when we've done something as the Dalai Lama had regret about in terms of the way he spoke to that particular monk. He, he had the regret, but it was not defining him. And so there's this big space in you, but, so, but the primary thing for you is you went from reactive to responsive to my ear. Yeah. So the other person, please. Yes. This is so beautiful. Thank you. Um, a week ago, my 87-year-old mom was visiting me, had an accident, fell, broke her hip, was taken to the ER, and I've instantly become her caretaker. And she's doing well. Um, she was on pain meds, so at times she was hallucinating and um, disoriented. So it's been very difficult. Just as I was at the end of the rope, I got the email about this class. So I'm so grateful to be here. Mm. I love my mom deeply. And you talked about being open-hearted. And there were times under the influence of the meds where she was really mean to me. And I'm wondering, how do you visualize the heart being open? And what do you do when someone is like that? How do you protect yourself? How do you keep going? And I have one more question after that. Like when we did the meditation, I was visualizing like a well, you know, a really deep well, and it was very tranquil down at the bottom, and it was safe. So I don't know if you have a suggestion about that. I do, actually. I've been through this uh, with a lot of people, and um, so, uh, you know, um, Taking care of our hearts means that the hearts can't, our heart can't be open to the same degree under all conditions, unless you're a, a, a Buddha, an Arahant. <laughs> there's, there's times when you have to protect your heart. You just have to protect it. So, uh, uh, but how do you do that and still be loving and kind to the mother you love? You, you, you. It's the quality of the care versus your feeling of the loving kindness, you can be going, boy, is she being yuck, you know, whatever word it is that you might say there. But you go, but I, my, my, I choose, this is, this is my mother, and I, my value is to take care of her. So you can be in a terrible mood, and yet you take care of her, 
and you're you're just watching yourself be in the terrible mood. And if you do that over and over again with that kind of freedom of choice, uh, it matters so much less because you start to see her contraction, her altered state of mind, and you stop taking it personal. And you see, oh, these are just conditions. This is not my mother. This is conditions that are speaking. Uh, my father was a difficult person. I held the, my whole life that there was the possibility of his ceasing being difficult. The day before he died, a, 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 a minister came in to see him and uh, he sent the guy out crying. So he managed his whole life to stay difficult. To some degree, I have to admire that, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but, and so... Uh, um, there were many moments, some really like over the top, where he was uh, that way towards me. I, I, I didn't, I had taken, I, had not, I wasn't giving him any power that he was going to affect me through those things. Every once in a while, he could slip something totally new in that I wasn't prepared for. I mean, I could give you an example, but it's a little too alarming, so I don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to create any, you know, uh, sympathetic trauma. But um, uh, so more and more you see, you see things as condition-based and not taking it personal. So, you, so if you feel hurt, what do you do then? You, you, you're very kind <laughs> to yourself. You go, oh, I'm hurt by this. But you don't then demand of her, who's not capable at that moment of being otherwise, you have to work with it in yourself. If you've got a friend you can say this to that can help you carry it, that's wonderful. If not, you know, you invite nature to carry it or you invite the Buddha to carry it. And that, that, that Buddha in you that knows the Dhamma, that knows the truth of things. So you're, you're, you're getting out of the narrative, the movie of life. You're not buying into the movie. You know, this is my mother and, and here I am being so good, taking care of her, and she's being so terrible to me. And da, 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 da. You just say, I'm not interested in that movie anymore. And it's deliberate now. The degree that you'll be able to respond will vary and over time you will become much more able to have a sense of freedom around it. That, but, but, and so from, a, from our perspective here at Spirit Rock, it's a moment of practice. And if seeing is practice rather than resulting, then you're much more at ease with it. Whoa, I'm reactive right now. Oh, so I'm practicing with being with reactivity and not getting defined by it as best I am able. So it's just a moment of practice. If it's a result, I'm, look at how I'm being, then there's all this judging and comparing. And So insofar as you can, you can trust that you're going to be kind. And you'll be as kind as you can be. Thank you. And when you said you were, when we did the meditation and you were saying about um, opening your heart, do you have or do you recommend a, a vision for that? Like... A visual? Uh, yeah, I think a visual, if, if the visual comes, yes. Uh, that's fine if a visual comes. Uh, okay. um, so it there's nothing, happen. but it, do, it is not necessary, but for some people it really helps, and so they deliberately create ones. If they always do that, I encourage them to try to do, let the heart open energetically rather than visually, but, um, but it's, it's fine to use the visual. Can I way. ask one other question? Uh, I'd rather you held that let uh, okay. someone else ask okay. a question. If there is other ones. Then we'll come up. 
Hi, thank you. Could you just review again the difference between mindfulness and attention? Yes, so uh, it's really an interesting topic, and it's in Analio's book on the, uh, about the, the, the Satipatthana, the best book that I know of on the four foundations of mindfulness, and it's in a footnote. <laughs> but uh, so at, at, uh, attention, uh, we're, we're developing wise attention. Epostic, uh, 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 sorry, uh, I can't do it right this moment. Anyway, wise attention, and uh, wise attention means that we pay attention to f- what's fruitful to pay attention to. But attention is the spotlight, so the, the spotlight of knowing. So if you were looking for something in the dark, you, your flashlight lights up to you find it because you, it, it lights it up. That's what attention does. It, it, it creates the, the ability for something to be known because you're directing knowing capacity to it. Clear enough? Mindfulness is staying present with what's being known in a particular way. And that way is a, a fully receiving, non-reactive way where the, the, the wishing to know how I'm relating to what is arising is, is the primary motivation rather than getting what I want or something or judging it or comparing it or fixing it. You're just you're staying mindful. You're staying present for it. The more moments that you're present, the more you start to develop this capacity of presence so that there is others will feel it in you there you have a certain presence because you because you uh, not all the time but a lot of the time you are present and therefore you have presence that presence can be qualif- uh, 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 colored by kindness or by uh, humor or whatever but oh i love being around that person because their presence is so you know fun or renewing to me or calming to me or whatever it may be so up here, please, with the mic. So yes, thank you for your sharing. Turn more like an ice cream cone, yes. Thank you for your sharing and your wisdom. Uh, so I work as an emergency room nurse in Richmond, and I recently attended a global health conference The first speaker talked about compassion and love for self and patients. So, of course, that's wonderful. I've had a 25-year meditation practice, spent a lot of time immersed in nature. It's beautiful, you know, to apply what you learn to your life. But working in the ER, that kind of environment is kind of the antithesis of supporting this kind of work. So um, I went up to him after, during the break, and kind of shared my struggles, being able to sustain this, this work that I love. And um, he basically said, I think it's time to leave. And I don't want to leave. And yet my nervous system is kind of in overdrive and I have a lot of difficulty uh, managing my my emotions while I'm at work at this point after all these years. So for me, um, 
it's great having these tools, but when you're in that environment and there's no natural light, there's no fresh air, uh, management is pressuring you, doctors are pressuring you, patients are, you know, suffering, how, how do you bring this work in that moment when you're running for eight hours trying to care for so many people who are struggling? I understand your question and uh, uh, first thing I would do is uh, uh, recognize your experience, validate your experience. That is your experience and it's coming about for natural reasons. It's not something you're imposing. And uh, as I said earlier about something, uh, as, as the person was saying to you, it may be the time to leave, I might say, there's times we need a break. So you might need a break for some period of months or something like that. So that would be one whole approach is to like give yourself time away, more time away to kind of renew. Like today is a day, but imagine having 30 days or you know 90 days for renewal. And uh, it's such a shame that and high-pressure jobs like that, that is a high-pressure job. Uh, it, is not, it is not always stressful. In, in my view, I was I was in the emergency room because of uh, I came very close to dying just in January, and I was in the emergency room, and it was too long a story. But um, so I got to observe all the nurses and all the doctors and all this, and um, um, uh, I was watching all of this with interest. What I would say to you is, you look for your oasis, you look for your moments where you can have fun with someone where you can help them laugh uh, around a situation where you can reassure them where you can feel the, the, the empowerment of what you have to offer we are going to be addressing this for you um, uh, are you comfortable where you are where you, where you, you, it is, you have control of your own experience in that moment. There's not somebody telling you to do this or that. You are doing something that was your job to do it, but you have how you do it and the attitude you bring. There's these little moments when you, it's your choice. And I am wondering if you have, if that has been conditioned out of you. That, you've, that you're failing to see those moments because the constancy of all of this work has really overwhelmed you. So I don't have the mic up. So, again, I appreciate that. And no, I mean, I laugh, I connect with my patients, I bring joy, I try to um, provide them with a lot of alternative support. And do so you enjoy that? Absolutely. That's a huge part of why I'm a nurse and why I love doing this work. What? And it's still not enough. My, again, I'm... So it, your system is just no longer able to sustain this. So if, if that's really true, which it could really be true, remember I started out by validating your experience, then you can try a break or, uh, or not. Uh, you, could, you could look for a... a some sort of reconfiguration of, of your job, you know, doing into a different aspect of nursing, not being in the emergency room or whatever it is that would maybe work for you. You'd have to try different things. Um, if if I were going, if I if it were me doing, if I was having all the feelings you have, and I can remember being, 
I've, I've been through with jobs in my life. Where I'm just through with them. You know, it's just like, I'm done. <laughs> you know, I'm just done. And, and that is, that's why it's so easy for me to validate your experience in that. I am done. And I've had, and, and uh, more than one situation, I've had to continue to do it for some number of years after I was done. <laughs> so, but I was still done. And I knew I was done. And I was doing the job anyway, because and, uh, in each instance, I really felt responsible. And my responsibility, meeting my responsibility uh, was more rewarding than being walking away. And it w- I would have paid a much higher price. I'd been more miserable, and it would have been more miserable for more years walking away. So I, I, I felt as though I was making a rational decision. But in one instance, the cost was really high, really high to me, because I was so done that it really it burned me out at another whole level, and it took a long recovery loop. But I still am glad I did what I did even though it was very expensive. Again, I'm speaking adult to adult here. This is not some sort of make-believe, everything can be great kind of talk. And I'm speaking to you that way. If I were going to stay in this, if I were you, I would double down on the way I was letting, I I would watch my experience moment to moment, and I I would do loving kindness every morning for myself, I would take little moments in the bathroom or wherever during the day to to throw this stuff off me like I was doing the cleaning this morning and to recommit and i would i would i would i would in my activities i would i would really say i'm going to double my attention when I am making someone laugh i'm going to see how grateful. I am. I will, I will look for the gratitude in me for that. How precious it is that I get to do that. And then when the moments when it's like, that's all you're feeling, dukkha, dukkha, you name it as dukkha, and you bring compassion to that dukkha. So you're always practicing. You're, you're saying this is about practice. And I, because I, I want to fully know this. And if I have to walk away, I will walk away, but I want to have fully known it. And that's, so that's what I would be about if I were doing it. Really appreciate that. That last piece was super helpful. Yeah, let's, let's try and see. Last one, and then we're going to go to lunch. So right here. Thank you. Uh, f- following up on the utility of taking a break, um, how do you respond when the loved one that you are caring for is extremely opposed to you ever taking a break. Uh, you know, um, that happens a lot. Uh, it really does. And, uh, you know, I, I don't in any way mean to sound... Um, I am sympathetic to their needs, but remember in the movement, here, now, no, this is my boundary... I need help. All of that, being able to come to this moment of no, no, I need my, I need this break. In, in again, in the uh, the the change and transition work I do, I place a big emphasis on sustainability. That is, you being able to sustain yourself as a care provider. You cannot, you you can't be in at the edge of your energy in a sustained way. It is not possible. 
It just doesn't, we fall off the edge too many times. It's the same with all these different, I have a whole, you can go online and listen to my talk about how you work with the edge, because people don't understand edge at all, <laughs> in my experience with them. Because uh, you don't stay at the edge of the edge in anything. You Back over here somewhere, you know, in, in relation to the little thing that I'm, the, the podium that I'm pointing to, it's like uh, oh, a tenth of the way back is really still the edge. You, if you stay at the edge of the edge in anything you're doing, you're going to do yourself in. It is not sustainable. We fall over the edge too many times, or we fall at one time way so deep we can't get out of it. So we don't, we, we periodically go to the edge of the edge if we're at the edge anyway. But you cannot stay at the edge of the edge. And you can't, you're, you're knowing what you need is you are the authority in what you need. The loved one who, of course, wants your continuous attention is not the authority. You cannot give that one person that authority. It is actually, from a Buddha point of view, in the Jataka tales, before he became the Buddha, he would do all of these things to have people not create bad karma for themselves. Like one time these two people robbed him, and then they got afraid that that he was going to, uh, you know, get the uh, law enforcement on them. So they decided to kill him, and they had, you know, hatchets, and they kept... They'd cut off a piece of his, of his body, and he'd just suddenly reappear. And the reason he was doing that is he did not want them to, to have the karma of having killed a future Buddha. And this is a Jataka tale, but it's a it's a wisdom tale. <clears throat> In the same way, you don't want someone to have to have abused you by their needs. You don't want that for them. So you're not just doing it for you. But doing it for you would be enough, but you're also doing it, from my view, you're also doing it for them. And when I say from my view, meaning how I have lived my life, you know, as best I was able, I can, I have definitely extended myself too much. I was just, not too long ago, a monk was saying to me, Sampajana, you need more clear understanding about your two, your, you know, you let people push you around too much. Uh, which is like, told a different reincarnation of me versus my early years in the business world. But nonetheless, so I, I, I'm confessing my own uh, uh, imperfection of this to help you. Um, you, um, uh, the, the, you are responsible for for your well-being, and you're responsible uh, as you being responsible for your own well-being. You're taking care of others. That's the power, and you have to do that. You have to say, "Oh, they don't know. They don't know." You can't, and you can't ask of them something that, in their desperation, their fixation, you can't ask it of them. And you have to carry it for yourself. Later on, they may be able to, or maybe never. We don't know. But you can't, it's, it's, there's no point to asking them to do it. And demanding something of someone that they can't deliver, it, it, it's a delusion. So there's greed, there's aversion, there's delusion. These, um, these, uh, th- three characteristics that happen this way, uh, that, of, around, um, the wanting mind. And so the delusion, that's delusion when we, over and over again, are waiting for them to... And, and of course, the longer you stay, the more then they go, see, you can do it. But, but you can be draining your reserves, and then you're not available at all to them. 
I take so long with this because I really want you to feel it and I want the rest of you in the room who have this tendency to, to overgive. You are not in the long run doing anybody any good by overgiving. In a, in a periodic, in a, uh, uh, in a given moment, it's fine to overdo, but not as a pattern. Not as a pattern. It's, it's, it's not harmonious. It just doesn't work. Doesn't work in any kind of job, by the way, not just in the care providing. Uh, so we're going to, well, I'll say one more thing here before we go to lunch, because we've got, now at this point, we'll come back at 145. Uh, the diff, why I call it care providing and not caregiving. I don't call it caregiving because I don't see it as unilateral. I see care providing as an exchange. And the exchange can be on a professional level, moment, mon- monetary or whatever, or status or getting to be the savior, whatever it is. But under any level, there is an exchange involved. And if we don't feel any exchange, we want to, we want to find that feeling of exchange within us. So, uh, getting to be who we want to be Getting to express who we wish to be is what we get out of something sometimes. We don't really get anything from the person we're taking care of. There's no appreciation. There's, there's a, this uh, either quiet sort of sense that you don't do enough or, oh, lucky you, you're the one who's not sick and, you know, you're older than I am, so why, you know, blah, blah, you know. There can be all sorts of terrible stuff coming at us, but still there's an exchange somewhere in us. And that we want to look for that exchange. That's our, that's our humanity. It's our Buddha nature. It's our open heart. We, we want to look for that. From my experience base, again, if you have a different experience base, you, it's your authority. Uh, this is just an invitation to look and see. There's, there can be some really tough situations for you have, to, for you to find what's a real exchange here. It doesn't feel, you know, it can be really like bleak. But if you keep looking, at least in my experience, not just with me, but all the people I've worked with, which now is lots of people, there is somewhere you can find the exchange. And we get back our dignity with that. We get our integrity with that. And the renewal, this renewal, this inner renewal that comes. So lunchtime now for an hour. We'll be back at 1.45 and we'll be doing new things in the afternoon building on what we've done this morning.
was a problem after I think it died out there or something. But it may have been something I did. What was happening? It died. It wouldn't work anymore. Oh, really? Okay.
This is for you to tell the others. Yeah. Yeah. So that's these are the objectives. And, and, and these were what we did. That was what was done to get you approved. Okay. So you can bring that back and see. But would you put that back on? Yes, sir.
We're going to begin the afternoon with a short sit and then we'll do some exploration, self-evaluation and then uh, go into more complex kind of instructions again. Arriving back in the room, what do you need to do to arrive in the here and the now? You're recognizing this uh, phenomena of arriving. It's deliberate. It does involve remembering in order to orient. Remembering purpose, remembering intention, remembering mindfulness front and center. And then arriving in the body. in the breath if you're choosing the breath as part of your object and then dropping into the level of the felt sense so it's a participant observer not a removed observer we're not separating from experience It's what we're bringing to the experience. How we're meeting it.
there is a particular approach to meditation which can be done for an hour, can be done, I've done it for multiple hours in a row, but can also be effectively done for five minutes or ten minutes that can be of use to you as a care provider or maybe to those you are helping. And it's called touch point meditations. T-O-U-C-H, touch point meditation. And the idea is that when the mind is uh, too restless, too activated, that rather than fighting the mind, we give the mind something to do. And that is we move the mind from one point of felt sense to another, to another, and then to the breath, and then back to these other three. So we're going to try that together now. Bring attention to the experience of the feet touching earth. Maybe the sides of the feet on the cushion or the tops of the feet or in the chair, the bottoms of the feet or it could be the sides if you're sitting cross-legged in the chair. But wherever you are in relation to feet and earth, And then noticing one quite specific experience that would be called a felt sense. It might be the warmth and coolness that's registering in the feet. Either or. It might be the heaviness or lightness of the feet. It might be the sense of pressure or tingling in the feet. Just so that you know you have feet how do you know that this first round we're going slow after that we'll really be going at a fairly strong moving speed now in the same way switching your attention to the buttocks and the pelvic area on the chair the bench the cushion what is the felt sense you do know there's a pelvis and you can feel it What is the signal? What is the felt sense that allows you to know the pelvis and where it is? Numbness, by the way, is a feeling. Sometimes people say, I don't have any felt sense, it's just numb. Numb's a definite felt sense. So how do you know? And use one word to describe it. Pressure. Cool, warm, 
vibrating. And now move attention to the experience, the felt experience of the hands. How do you know there are hands? What we call hands. Vibration, pressure, warm, cool, connected. Tight, loose, throbbing, still. How do you know what is one prominent experience of handness at this moment? And now to the breath for just a couple of breaths. Again, noticing how you know there's the existence of breath, the felt sense. It may be tingling, pressure, vibration, movement, flow, in and out, warmth, coolness. How do you know? Again, use a word or two words at most. Now back to the feet. Just quickly name to yourself, verbalize internally to yourself how you're experiencing feet that you know they're there. Can be the same word as before or a different one. And now the same with the pelvis, the felt sense of the pelvis. And now move the attention to the hands. And now the breath. breath feet pelvis hands 
breath. Go around a couple of times at your own speed. On your own, the speed that works for you. Keep moving. If the mind gets to lagging, move your attention even faster. And now stop the movement of the touch point and just be with the breath or just be without even an object and see what that's like. So again, for an agitated mind, giving the mind something to do can calm it down and it can keep it off the subject that's agitating it, traumatizing it, uh, 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 confusing it, sending it into a kind of hysterics. So the mind needs things to do. Giving it something specific to do can be one skillful means, just as we did with touch point meditation, Uh, uh, 
we will talk about the interrupt later on in the day, but there's other ways to, to calm the mind down. So I wanted to... Um, I wanted to um, uh, do a little exercise of topology. And this has to do with the judging and comparing and fixing. So it has been my observation, and I've now done this with some thousands of people, where we can each have some pretty good assessment of what tendencies of mind we have. So... uh, Uh, In all typologies, they are not identities. They are tendencies of mind. This often gets confused where people will say, oh, I'm a six and have an identity out of it and and so forth. uh, Oh, I'm an introvert, uh, whatever the particular typology is. So just tendencies of mind. So we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to describe the possibilities and ask you to just in this moment your best guesstimate as to what is your tendency of mind in relation to judging comparing and fixing so judging is saying good or bad in all sorts of ways comparing is better than worse than in all sorts of ways some of which can be quite clever and then fixing is this immediately moving the mind that when you touch an object you you want to fix it in some way. There's just you just or you're looking around for things to fix that you you know you, your mind wants something to fix. If it, it'll it'll go look around the corner to find something to fix if there's nothing immediately available. Some of you recognize that I can see. So I'm going to start this out to um, no. I, let's first I'll do the combos. Sorry. Okay. So you can be a judging and comparing. So your first tendency is judging. The second tendency, and there tends to be a second one. So um, uh, in in the Buddhist topology of greed, aversive, and delusion, it's my opposite. The Buddha taught it. Not the that wasn't really the Buddha. It came from somewhere else. But anyway, uh, the the um, the uh, you can say, "Well, I'm a greed type," but. If you're a greed type, then you also tend to be either aversive or deluded. So there's, there's these, there tends to be a second that's quite strong, not just the one. And the same is true here. So you can be a judging and comparing. You can be judging and fixing. You can be comparing and judging, comparing and fixing. Fixing and judging, or fixing and comparing. Do I need to repeat those? I think everybody's got it. And it's very interesting to see in my workshops that I offer in terms of change and transition, this is one of the things that we do as a group where everybody goes around and verbally says what they are because it turns out that um, if, if you are a fixing type and you're talking to a judging type, the, the, with uh, your fixing energy, you're just trying to help out. You're trying to make things better. But the judging type will go, I'm being judged immediately because that's how they see the world. So there's all sorts of advantages, not just to knowing ourselves, but knowing another person. Someone comes in, if you're a comparing type, 
and they're they're making some fixing comment, you may well hear that as you're being compared to so and so or to whatever it may be, your younger self or whatever whatever could be coming up. So lots of different advantages to this. We can't. I I've really tried to convince myself that we could uh, that it would be okay to take the time to go around and have each person say out loud but it's just too many people so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, we're going to stand up by our there's six types so we're going to stand up when it's our tribe and um, I find comfort in having a tribe of these tendencies Um, in the Enneagram I'm a five and for the longest time, everybody was telling me in the Enneagram what typology I was. And I didn't know anything about the Enneagram. And there's a, there's, they're through eight. And people say, well, you know, no, they're through nine, sorry. People say, you know, you're an eight. And I'd say, well, what's an eight? They'd say, well, you're the boss type. And I'd say, that doesn't feel right to me when they describe it. And then one day I went to this group thing and um, there was a panel of fives. And it was like I was meeting my people. And I was so happy to actually have, you know, people that I could identify with. And fives, by the way, tend to be very withdrawn. They tend to, you know, need need a lot of time by themselves and so forth. And definitely uh, applies to me. So I will, I'm going to... uh, I don't have. No, I'll just stand up with my group, like everybody else. I was going to tell you what my my two are. So you're saying what's your primary? So uh, you you walk in a room, you know, and you go, I don't like those curtains. You know, that's a judgment, right? Enough. You know, I could have done a better job of laying out this room. <laughs> that's comparing. So and and fixing is go. Oh, you know, if they would just move this around. <laughs> That's that's the fixing. So you can be your lead can be judging, comparing, or fixing, and your secondary can be judging, comparing, or fixing. Yeah. We are all three. All of us are all three. No, no. Well, I'm not going. That's not the right answer. Not likely. <laughs> not not likely. A number of people have said this through the years. But when I've questioned them, again, in a smaller group, I can question them. They usually come to go, no, no, it's true. I tend to do more of one or the other. So, but I don't have time to do that. So what you do is you open your mouth. In this instance, you're going to be standing up because when our time comes, our group comes, we're going to stand up so everybody else can see us and we can see our tribe. So you just choose one. when it, For whatever reason, there's a spontaneous choosing of that. So do you, do you, does your mind tend to judge something that's good or bad when it first sees it? Or does it tend to compare or does it tend to fix first? <laughs> yes, they all, we all do. But there's something, the very first thing when your eye lights on something, your mind comes across something. Pardon me? Yeah, well, you're going to, you got the, this is your while, you better make use of it. <laughs> what, what if something really counted on this? It's not so much getting it right as it is that you're exploring. You're exploring, well, would that be true? So don't try to, again, you're not trying to get it right. This is practice. 
So you stand up with a group and you see how that felt later. I really tried to be an eight, but it, it wasn't true. Despite everybody thinking I was an eight, it turns out that when fives mature, they go to eight. So that was the thing. But the money was saying, oh, you're a five that's matured into an eight. I admire you so much. They weren't saying that. They were saying, you're an eight. <laughs> Reducing me. So I, I, I don't, uh, when I do this with people, I, won't, I will not suggest what you are. <laughs> and this tendencies of mine only. And it can change over time. And uh, if you're real sensitive, you may be so aware of all three. And if you look in, you can find all three in any given one. So that's, that can add to the confusion too. But just trust. Just see what happens. Okay. That's, I guess that's true. You could stand up more than once. I guess. I've never had that happen before. Okay. So um, the... Uh, Judging, comparing types, stand up for a moment. And stand there till, uh, let, look, so people can look around and see their tribe. And the rest of you, can, so see there's a lot of judging, comparing. Thank you. Sit back down. Now, uh, uh, judging and fixing types. Thank you. Now, comparing and judging. So comparing would be first, judging would be second. Oh, not so many. This is very unusual that this, okay. Oh, thank you for joining us. <laughs> and now comparing and fixing. Let's look around for a moment. Again, pretty low number. Hmm. Okay, thank you. So uh, now uh, fixing judging. Yeah, I, I fix. I walk in the room and I'm already looking for something to fix. My friends, when they, I walk down the street, they start laughing at me. They're, oh, there's a trash can over there. I can make that lid more secure. You know, it's just <laughs> pathetic. <laughs> okay. And now uh, judging, I'm sorry, fixing, comparing. Interesting. <laughs> okay, thank you. So um, uh, at least it woke you up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, in, in, all, in all seriousness, I find typology useful to, so that we can recognize unrecognized tendencies of the mind. And if you, um, if you have, uh, you may have grown up with a mother who was always fixing you. Or you may have grown up with a mother who was always judging you. At least that was your experience. And um, that can maybe bring some understanding to that. Or maybe you were one of those mothers that was always fixing your children. And you just see it as a tendency of mind that came about either because of some genetic reasons or conditioning or both. I have no clear view as to why these seem to be this way. But it helps in terms of taking the vows not to do it. And we'll come back to 
opportunity about carrying those vows forward in a certain way after today. Okay, so that is that. Now, this next thing that I would like us to do is um, a little bit... um, It's going to be a little challenging (laughs) for some of you. I'm going to ask us to stand and do movement in a moment. And we're going to be doing individual movement that expresses our physical experiences around being a care provider in whatever form that may have taken. You may have been, your care providing may have been with a friend where you provided emotional support. That's what your, that's what your care providing has been. Because there's no, you don't have to be a, an official care provider to come here. It's you came here because in some way this was something that interested you. But I'm going to ask just for a few minutes. And I had there, I was going to put on music, but the guy wasn't here, so we'll do without the music. But and it's so it's not exact. It's a dance, but it's not a necessarily rhythmic at all. It's just movement. So like um, I during our break, I was I was watching what I would do, and like the first thing I wanted to do was this. I have no idea why, but it really felt good to do it. <laughs> And then, and then I did a whole different move. And again, there felt like a harmony in the move. And so we're, we're wanting to, uh, allow the energy patterns that have come up around our care providing to have a kind of expression as part of our release of this, part of our renewal of the day. You, uh, this, I'm asking you to trust me on this. You can trust me on this and it not work for you, but recognize that it worked for others. But if you, if you put out this vibe of I hate this, it makes it harder for the rest of us, particularly people like me who are very self-conscious anyway. It's much harder for me to be doing this than any other person in the room, I assure you, because I'm up here having to do it, <laughs> having to hold the possibility of this too. And again, the, the advantage of this is that um, uh, at the end of your day of care providing or the end of that time, the hour of care providing, you would do some, you would do some motion that was, that could not be expressed verbally at the time or can't be expressed verbally now. It might not even be in a verbal form, but there's this energetic experience we have when we're paying attention to another person that can be quite strong. And that energy is there in the body, but it, then it doesn't get out. That's why we started with this sweeping business this morning to sweep uh, all of this out. And I'll come back to that if I remember at the end of the day to talk to those, those of you who are uh, professional care providers about, the, about this cleansing processes and this. This comes up so much on residential retreats where uh, care providers come in and uh, report about they've got all of this stuff in them from their care providing and it's like tormenting them while they're sitting and uh, so we talk about things to do like this. So again, I've seen that this all works. Okay, so... Taking a big breath and up we stand. If it's of any comfort, the other thing I was going to have us do that I'm not going to have us do was even more risky. (laughs) 
So, so what you're doing is you're just, you're letting yourself move. So you stop for a moment and wait. For, it's, this is a form of spontaneous movement, uh, like continuum is a form of, those of you who've ever done continuum, that's spontaneous movement. And it's beautiful and wonderful and cleans the nervous system out. To do a day long on continuum is wonderful. So this, but this is spontaneous movement. But you're and it's but you're bringing into your your caring self the care the care provider identity that you take on the role the care provider role is a better word to say where you're letting a movement come up for right now and we'll keep doing this till I ring the bell so you start when you're ready to actually let movement form you can have eyes open or closed but don't go staring at other people. Keep your eyes on yourself, please.
coming to stillness. From movement to stillness. The body is still. The mind can be still. Not moving towards objects. Either resting in a single object like the breath or body sensations. Or just resting back in its knowing capacity. There's a vague or general awareness of the body, the senses, but there's nothing grabbed onto at all. Stillness. can be able to do stillness of mind and become afraid, uncertain, and go back to the habitual, the old pattern. What we're being afraid of is the unknown but not the unknown itself so much as it is our being in the unknown. That's what we're meeting. We're meeting ourselves, our tendencies, our habits, our stories in this unknown space of stillness. Inviting the mind not to move towards objects that we're going to be known. You're knowing, but you're not knowing anything in particular. Just background stuff coming and going. The stillness is not fixity. It's just still. It's not moving away from objects nor towards objects. It's just still.
as best you are able, allow the heart to be more open, more present in this stillness. Brush aside the way we did with the body when we were this morning brushing off all of the kinds of difficulties that can come onto the body from our care providing. So you're brushing away mentally anything that stops your heart from opening in the stillness. can be story. You're not denying the truth of story. You're just not interested right now. can be wanting. Still and still moving.
stillness is healing for many people. Whether or not uh, it is for you, I can't know. And it can be very difficult to find stillness. And one way to find stillness is to create movement and stop. And that's stillness of the body. And then we can learn stillness of the mind from the felt sense of stillness of the body because they feel quite similar, actually, the stillness of each. It's just a different sense gate, and that, that can be a little confusing. But the stillness is the stillness. And um, a, a deep meditation is often, I'd say, usually characterized by that stillness. So again, it's part of the tradition in many ways. Another thing that uh, you can look at is what I uh, call the three kinds of selfing. And um, uh, selfing being this making a self, creating, falling into the illusion of a permanent self. And these three uh, tendencies of mind tend to do that. The, the first is uh, when people are uh, constantly self-referencing. You may know someone like that. You may be like that yourself. Uh, but there's just uh, this a lot of self-referencing. And uh, if, you may, if you're taking care of someone that's self-referencing, uh, they don't have so much time to ask how you are. Oh, you had the day off yesterday. They don't say, how was your day off? They don't. It's like, uh, oh, this is what I need now kind of feeling. Uh, so uh, the second kind of selfing that is in excess, and all three of these are in excess, is a, a self-centeredness where they don't really even notice so much uh, your needs. And uh, they could be self-centered because of the condition that's arisen. Ordinarily, they're not self-centered or they could have been self-centered the whole time you've known them or their whole lives or something. And they could even have the condition they have because that self-centeredness led them to a, to a situation where this occurred. So uh, the, the self-centeredness is... Um, um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a lack of relatedness or it's, a, the, it's restricted relatedness. Maybe that's the right way to say it. Some of you psychologists could say it better than me, I'm sure. But I've, I've practiced observing this in a large uh, group of people now, so I have a lot of experience identifying this. It's one of the things I notice in, in uh, practice discussion meetings. And so, so that's self-centeredness. And then the third is selfishness. And selfishness is really, when you're in the care provider role, that's really hard to take when your person that you're taking care of is just plain old selfish. You know, there's never enough, right? That, and whatever you've done for them matters not in the least. It's what you need to do for me right now. And uh, so on and so forth. Again, I see some people nodding and all. None of this is judging them or comparing them, and it's certainly not fixing them. Good luck with that. It is discerning. So there is a big difference between judging and comparing and discerning. Discerning is how we find wisdom. It's part of this uh, sampajana, this 
uh, this mindfulness with clear uh, with a clear intention with wisdom. Pajana means wisdom. So there's a uh, it's it's a, you you know with some pajana you know what's called for and what's the appropriate response for you based on what's called for. That's clear understanding some pajana. And so when you're interacting and you're in a situation when there's one of these three uh, 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 out of balance uh, selfing is occurring over and over again with the person you're working with, you're, then you, you, that is the first thing to do is not get uh, overly injured by it so that you become aware that this has an effect on me in one form or another. I become hard against it or I actually start feeling inadequate because of this. Uh, uh, I become resentful. You know, I, like, I, I, I go act it out on someone else because I can't act, it doesn't seem appropriate to act it out here, so I act it out somewhere else. Uh, if you're on the other side of it and you realize, wow, you have a lot of, uh, of self-centered references in your own uh, style and you're trying to be a care provider, then to recognize having a lot of this kind of of uh, mental orientation, this tendency of mind, really gets in the way of me being a care provider because I get so lost in myself that my heart doesn't get a chance to open to them the way it would. So I can be, I can not be being nourished by the process that I think I like because of, of this tendency of my own mind. And again, this is an extreme in all three. So a person who's constantly self-referencing or constantly self-centered. We all self-reference some. It's, I don't like it when the other person doesn't self-reference some because I want to know about them and I want to, uh, in, in a conversation. Self-centeredness, there's times for that. So like this is a day for you to be self-centered, to be focused on you. Uh, so again, there's, it's appropriate to be self-centered at times to keep yourself, take care of yourself. But if it's a compulsion, it's, it's, it's almost always there or something like that. And then selfishness. Uh, the, uh, selfishness is getting into a kind of, um, you know, at least what I mean by excessive selfishness. Uh, that, that is really, that's dukkha all in its own. And if we're the ones who've sort of become selfish for having feeling like life has injured us or someone's broken our heart or whatever it is and we're in a reactive mind state of selfishness, uh, we want to address that because it's like we're in a perpetuating loop of dukkha. In my experience, at least, you may have a different one, experience of that. But for a child to be selfish, uh, we don't we don't want to like condemn a child because... Children go through that at times when they're unbelievably selfish. They won't share their toys. They won't, you know, and, you know, those, those are developmental stages. But when we're dealing with adults, it's another matter, that, that, that excessive uh, selfishness. And so just to be interested in it in that way. So now having done, having done the movement, having done this, these various kinds of meditations that we've done, again, I want to take a little pause here and see if there's questions or, or comments about what we've done or deeper understanding of it. And uh, so one microphone for over here, please, and one. And we're going to start over here on the front row.
<laughs> nice exercise there. Down here in the very front. Thank you, Philip. Um, so with this selfing and seeing it arise and understanding that that's what it is, and, you know, okay, knowing that I know this is self-centered, this is, mm-hmm. you know, self-obsessed, you know, self-fill-in-the-blank. Yeah. What is the strategy? Ah, thank you for that. Somehow I didn't even think to say the strategy, so thanks a lot. Um, so, so the... Uh, the, the solution is, uh, is for us when it's we're the ones manifesting it. It is starting with compassion, not judging at all, but rather compassion. Oh, there's injury here. There's injury. Something is being compensated for. You know, something has thrown off off balance, and we haven't come back. You know, where we're. Uh, and what is what does this feel like? This self-centeredness, say. The self-centeredness may feel like um, uh, underneath it is fear, or underneath it is just wanting my turn. And I didn't get my turn, and I got into an unhealthy relationship with not having my turn. My turn of what? Whatever it might be: attention, love, praise, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, so that we start with compassion, and we stay with it, and until till there's a, we can handle having. We don't want to try to examine it till it's reasonably safe, because we can. It can turn to self hatred so fast if we try to look at it too soon. So once the but once the compassion is established, again, this is very useful for you who are in the psychological. Uh, worlds in one form or another. Uh, once, once there's some degree of compassion there, which can seem at first like you're feeding the selfishness or something or the self-centeredness, then then you uh, you start to look at it the way we do with mindfulness uh, in order to have insight about it, and you realize someone you can help, you can point out to someone eventually help, but first see what they see on their own. Oh, this is dukkha. This is suffering. All of this self-referencing, all this self-centeredness is dukkha. This is like, this isn't actually fun at all. It's like, there's something off about this. I don't really enjoy this deep down. There's not a feeling, there's not resonance, whatever you, you have to, there's not a sense of harmony. There's a, there's a sense of, you know, I'm too, like I, I don't, I, I can't hang around the other, I can't really open to the other person's full thing of being, or I'll run into this, where I'll get uncomfortable with my self-centeredness, if you see what it means. So they see all the different ways that it is dukkha, whatever ways it can be true for them that they can experience. And and then, uh, 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 since there's no judgment throughout, you go, there is a possibility of it being different. It's You do have choice. And slowly coming to uh, see, oh, it is, there is choice. And again, if you're working with someone else, you're holding that possibility for them till they can hold it for themselves. Where that, um, that they, uh, and it's just a little bit of less self-centeredness makes such a difference for a person that's 
compulsively self-centered. Again, I see noddings out there from people that know, have worked with people around this. Uh, and self-referencing is the easiest to work with because it's not that intense. The, the self-centeredness is more intense and then the selfishness is like, it's really grasped in there. And again, um, one wants to be very tender with um, with uh, people around selfishness because you don't know what the wound is often, and so you want to really watch out. You, and you don't ever you don't ever use these labels for another person. That's not that's not. You just talk about well, I notice you do this or that. You you stay broad and your um, and. Um, as a yoga teacher, you can have your students have these kind of, you can run into students and you can witness their suffering around this. But you want to be very careful as a, you, you just like, uh, like you would teach them just a little bit how to move their mind in relation to their various poses or to their, how they evaluate their practice or what they see when they see someone do a pose well or able to chant well or whatever to just help the just little small things till they kind of gain some momentum and it's not like you're not crashing in there and because you, you can also be wrong and you're only seeing a person in a limited way so you don't want to you know you don't want to label people but you but you can see tendencies of mine and work with it so can i just be very 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 specific sure so my mother's 89. I'm her caregiver. It's just her and I have two other siblings and they don't live in California. And, um, you know, we have history. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, she does not have a hair out of place and I don't have a hair in place. And, mm-hmm. um, and we both like it that way. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's very, very, very difficult for me to you know feel judged and and see the constant self-referencing and i find myself getting so angry i mean really like angry mm-hmm. you know I, she's hard of hearing and so i get to say really whatever i want <laughs> i'm serious that's my strategy you know so, yeah I all my chakras balanced and everything you know what i mean that yes. is my strategy yes um, so, um, uh, just before you turn up the mic, uh, is, is she a judging, fixing, or a judging, comparing? What is she as a, as a tendencies of mine? She is a judging, judging, judging. Yeah. There so, are no, there is nothing. Well, then the second in those instances is generally comparing. So, yeah, so somewhere back in there, she's comparing you to, you know, whatever, what she wants you to be was part of that too. But yeah, so it's very hard to be, and, and her reference is her point of view. So she's, her self-centeredness is in her reference that the way she thinks it should be is of course the way it should be. So uh, you have to encounter that over and over again. She has to live it 24-7. Well, except she's got, so she's got the beginning stages of dementia. She's in this horrible place where she knows yes. that she's got it. She you know, she hasn't crested the wave yet. Right. So I, I, I would actually prefer it if she was on the other side. Yeah. So she knows yes. what's coming. Well and so that's gonna make it even more exacerbated. But remember she's having to live with that tendency of mind constantly. You only 
You only visit that mind through her. You do not have to live with it. So of the two of you, who is the better off? You. And it's important to remember that because otherwise you can get, you can in reaction to her, everything is self-reference to her uh, self-centeredness. So you can, you can like mirror that back like, and it can be, it become more exaggerated. The freedom is letting your mother be as she is at this point. That is the freedom. Just let her be. Let go, let go, let go. Let her be. And uh, when it's too much at any given time, you don't be around. You know, you go in the other room. You go take a walk. You whatever you have to do, Mom. I I've got to take a shower. Whatever it is, to you know, to remove yourself because you must take care of yourself. But you let her be, and this is your gift to her. Your gift that you're not you're not paying her back in kind. You're not paying her back. You're, you're, as best you can, you're loving her without making her pay. There's a great freedom in that. Uh, I was, uh, I, I couldn't find this poem I was going to bring. That's a very difficult poem about that. Uh, Tony Hoagland wrote it, and it's about him taking care of his mother, whom he had had a horrible relationship with. And now he's got all the power in the relationship, and to watch his mind want to pay her back in a certain way, and how to just be horrified by his own mind wanting to pay her back. So, um, yeah, that, that's the growth is the opportunity. She is your teacher. She's your little burr under your side. Let go, let go. Oh, here's a chance to practice again. I don't want to practice again. <laughs> oh, and I'll practice again anyway because there is no better alternative than to practice, to let go, let go, to let her be. To hold her and as, with as much kindness as I can, not excusing anything. You're not doing that. You're just holding her with as much kindness as you can. And that is the freedom. Both sides right here. Thank you. Um, I found that exercise of movement followed by stillness really powerful I found the sorry um, I found the exercise of movement quite surprising followed by the stillness and I find my mind is still in turmoil so something got stirred up so that I can't really listen to what you were just saying so I wanted to ask you a question and see if I can get back into the room um, and that is what your sense is of what lies on the other side of those three, um, judging, comparing, and... Fixing. Fixing. Funny, I would leave that one off. Um, so what I got into is the, the question of what's the fear or what problem is it designed to solve? And I have ideas that came up for me as a fixer. Um, which I can say, but I'm more interested in whether you have some ideas of a typology and even more a practice for peeling away the layers. So, um, obviously, I'm most interested in the fixer side, but the, the, the thing would be true for all three. So, the deep I'll just say, the deepest that I got, and I have no faith that I have the right answers, the deepest that I got about fixing is um, it's designed to solve I don't exist, I don't have any value, Nobody would stick around if I weren't. Those kinds of things. 
Um, and I wonder if you have thoughts about... So uh, there would, in, in my experience, and again, I've been doing this, I've been using these these three for, I, I've lost track, 20 years or, I don't know, many, many decades, you know, lots of years. And uh, in these workshops and all, and then I've, 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 some years ago I started adding this to residential retreats that I teach. We take these vows and also this has come up a lot. Um, and, and always there is, uh, there's some imbalance in it. And I would treat it as imbalance rather than trying to identify all the sources that have caused the imbalance. So, but uh, just to give you an example, for myself, the fixing it came from, as far as I could tell, from two major uh, sources. One, that uh, things were so wrong unnecessarily. They were so unnecessarily wrong And when I was a child. And had I been able to set the behavior of everybody, just the rules as to like how, how the family spent money even, just everything. I, they, 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 it was just, it was just everything was unnecessarily wrong, and I became fixated on fixing because because I was so frustrated over and over again by it, and um, not so much my own suffering, but the suffering of the other. Uh, I came from a large family, and all that. It was just, it was pointless, and it was so hard to bear the suffering. When I couldn't fix it, when I knew I could fix, I knew it was fixable, and so that was one of my sources. And then the the second one was finding finding value only in what I contributed. So those, I'm just give you that as an example for one person with that. With you, um, it, it it could be that that was a staking out your personality in relation to your parents in some way. It could be that they didn't fix you in certain ways. They didn't attend to you in certain ways. So you found that out, how to fix things for yourself, and that became a tendency. There's lots of different possibilities. Um, when, we, when something comes alive for us, and this is really your contribution to this saying, naming this in the room, when something, but when we're stirred up like that around all of this, because here we are in a caretaker role, and then, you know, when our, our fixing or our judging or our comparing is like, you know, stirred up, oh, well, we want to, we want to first meet it with kindness, this non-judging, so important, because there's some reason it's there. And it has served a useful purpose or it would not be there. It's in, uh, sometimes we have copied a parent or something like this, but even that has uh, a useful person. We've internalized it, which helps us protect from the outside. I'm not trained as a psychologist. I just know human nature. But um, uh, So we, we're kind towards it. We assume it's there for a reason, but we don't assume that it's fixed forever. We don't, it's not fixed forever. And we, we, therefore we become interested in what's my, what's possible right now. We can have a goal of, I'd really like to have a whole new balance of this. And that's a wonderful goal. But the, the, in the momentness, the intention of this momentness is when I feel this come up in me, I wish to relate to it in a, in a deeper way. It's immediate. It's right now. I, I struggle conveying this the way I understand the Eightfold Path. And I've checked this out with a number of 
of uh, Ajans in Thailand, because uh, since I feel it so strongly, intention is this moment. And the second of the Eightfold Path is wise intention. It's wise intention right now. Intention only happens in this moment. So that's why having our clarity around our values and all, and then having a uh, right view about what we want to go, what goal we want to have, then our values manifest right moment that, oh, I, want, I, don't, I don't want to go into this self-referencing right now. I, that self-referencing only leads me into misery because then I get to feeling sorry for myself or, oh, that here, I don't want to go into this fixing this person. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, this is my friend. I love my friend. Why would I, why would I have all these fixing thoughts? Why don't I just appreciate my friend? Uh, and this is so common in friends, where now, particularly in our society, where we're, you know, we're all little minor psychologists. So, uh, we have a hard time of just listening. This is, uh, I'll come up at the last for the, professional care providers our listening skills are not so good because we don't listen we don't listen in a clean way we listen to with that ear we're going to fix it's fine if you're a professional to be thinking about fixing but not at first just listen just listen if you're a friend just listen to your friend don't fix your friend don't fix your mom or your dad don't don't fix your siblings don't fix your uh, partner, husband, lover, they, whatever the appropriate language would be to describe that person. Let loose of that as an a priori agenda. If something's wrong, then we realize at some point you have to deal with it. But just these automatic tendencies of mind, they're dukkha. They're dukkha. And so... When we, if if something's touched us and we're a little stirred about it, oh, this is an opportunity. This is saying to me, I want more balance. I don't have to know why I want more balance. I want more balance. Great, and let the energy of that serve you in moving towards more balance, as opposed to figuring out, which can kind of have a fixing aspect to it, as to why it's like this. I, I have a. I think you can find somewhere online. I've done a number of day-longs about how to work with story because um, uh, I think it's somewhere. But uh, there's the, the way we use, you know, we have to have story in our lives. We, life makes no sense without a story. But we, um, our relationship, how we relate to story is so often unskillful. And again, I say all this from my own learning. You know, I... I stopped doing anything else in the world at 40 and I studied all of this for you know now over three decades and so I, I've learned from my own experience and then uh, seen it played out in all these other lives. So um, so yeah, so that, that's the how I would answer that. Uh, one, okay, down here in front. I'm not seeing hands in the back yet, so. Hi. Uh I'm wondering if I misinterpreted the vows um, because it seems that if you're taking a vow to not do these activities that when when those stories come up in your mind you might end up with more stories on top of the stories about, you know, um, judging yourself for it which is another story on top of the judgment. So does it make more sense to say that the vows are 
to create space around um, what comes up? Yeah, so uh, I'm not sure I understand your question, but uh, but uh, but so when these when you're so uh, when judging mind comes up, you then don't go into judging your judging, right? That's that's not helpful at all. You're recognizing and releasing, letting go as best you're able. Oh, this is just my judging mind, and you let loose of it as best you're able. This is just my fixing mind. You just recognize it and let loose. You're going to, why did this come about? And you don't start judging your fixing mind or fixing your judging mind. You just let loose, let loose of it, but with kindness. So when you, the recognition is imbued with kindness, compassion. Karuna is the, the word in Pali for compassion. So metta, this kindness, and karuna, that those are those qualities imbue the recognition, and then the upeka, the equanimity, is what allows you to stay balanced enough for those two to be in existence. So, so it's more of a, a, a vow to release the reactivity to those tendencies that may come up, because they will continue to come up at least for some time. I would assume you probably will come up forever. They're always some level, come up, yeah, all right? of them. But you're releasing any um, reactive... Reactive mind, yeah. clinging to, identifying with all of these language that we use. Okay, let's do some walking meditation now. And in this walking meditation, I am going to ask you, as you're walking, at some point before you get to the end of your path, to occasionally stop and just ask this question, what do I, that's not what I want to say, I want to say, what can I do, what can I do to better take care of myself? So you're stopping, you're interrupting your path, and then you ask that question and then you walk again. You're not waiting for the answer. You're, you're at the end of the whole walking period when you hear the bell, you see what your truth is. Of course, you're going to have all sorts of thoughts and you're going to not let loose of your thoughts and we know how imperfect it's all going to be. But, you're, but, but, you're, but the, the, the discipline is asking the question, being available for the answer to arrive, but not, not trying to look for the answer. You're just going to keep walking. But you just interrupt and say... What can I do? What can I do to better take care of myself? And you know, this again, this is your responsibility is to take care of yourself. So you're asking that question not as how should I take care of myself, but out of this genuine heart opening, what can I do to better take care of myself? And it might be to say I need to take a sabbatical, you know, or it might be something so small as uh, you know, I used to I used to dance when I got home in the evening. Now I don't do that. Maybe that's what it is. So we'll have about mm, yeah, twenty minutes for walking.
solution to it. It is to be born consciously. And in that conscious caring of it, there is an alchemical possibility. through any of it by all that. See, I choose this because it is kind of feeling that eventually this other this other thing happens and here you say this there's just something different. That's why I call alchemical. There's no there's no one direct thing that I can put this for is it's mysterious. It's just mysterious. You're going to choose to do this. So you hold this with this. I am consciously choosing this. This is my practice. This is my heart's practice. And it served my highest good. It served my highest.
invitation. The meditation that we'll be doing now is a form of the metta meditation, the loving-kindness meditation that is uh, in the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, and it's a radiating metta, so that we will be opening the heart, and um, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that unfolds. And then, depending on how the room feels, I may switch us to compassion, meditation, or some other form at some point. We'll just see what happens. So, back into this room. Do the short version of getting into this room with your full attention. Arriving in the here and now of this moment. Arriving back in the body so that you are literally embodied awareness. That awareness, this capacity of knowing is localized and the length of your body It's universal, but it's localized in the here and now, in your body, in this moment. And reflecting on the good qualities of this day, the sincerity of your inquiry, the fact that you've made understanding so important that it's been worth a day of your life rather than going off escaping. All the small acts of kindness you've done, the small acts of kindness you've received, Recognizing some universal quality of caring. With these qualities of caring... Drop into your heart space. If you want to make it literally in the body, make it a little to the right of the physical heart, a little more towards the center. But this whole general heart area works maybe the best. Reflecting on that intentions you have. Reflecting on the times that you do choose to not be self, 
reference self-centered, selfish. Reflected on the times you responded with caring rather than judging, caring rather than comparing, caring rather than fixing, and likewise been the recipient of allowing your heart to soften, expand as it wishes, not pushing it in any way. It's an energetic feeling here, not a physical feeling. You may feel the energy in the body, but it's energetic. And then reflecting on the fact that there is a natural radiance of the heart, of this caring, of this friendness. Start to let this loving kindness radiate to all the people, all the beings that are to the front. Friendliness, friendliness, caring, kindness, radiating out naturally from the heart to all that's in the front. Maybe a little smile on the lips, knowing that you too are the beneficiary as it's radiating from deep inside you. And now expand the scope of this radiating loving kindness to all those beings to the right of you. Not just in this room, not just in Spirit Rock, not just in Northern California, but without end, all beings to the right. Metta, metta, metta. Friendly, friendly, caring. Steady, flowing. You may feel it as pulsating. You may feel it as a tingling, radiating, coming out in waves, floating particles out. Meta, meta, meta.
And now opening to all of those beings to the rear, to the back. Letting the loving kindness radiate out without preference, without demand. Friendness, friendness. Caring, metta, metta, metta. To the front, to the right, now to the back. This metta may have a healing energy at times. People may come and go as images within it. But mostly what you're doing is this energy field itself. And now opening to all of those on the left, all beings on the left. Metta, metta. Metta, metta, in all these four directions. In front, to the right, to the rear, to the left. to all of those below all the way to the other side of the planet and beyond. Metta, metta, metta. Caring, available, non-demanding. Radiating out to all of those in front, to the right, to the back, to the left, down below. And all of those beings that are on top of where we are. In whatever plane, whatever planet. This loving kindness flowing out in this direction without demanding contact, without seeking anything. Just this generous offering. Mata, mata.
no end to this matter. And now letting this loving kindness go, feeling it in the body still as an echo, as a rhythm, however you feel it. Thinking of someone now that's in a difficult position. It may be someone you work with personally as a care provider in some form or just someone you're aware of that you're not in a professional role or too close in personally. So in this instance, 
It is the heart's response. Metta is evergreen. It's always flowing like equanimity. It's not situationally brought forth. Karuna is situationally brought forth when we see suffering. When we practice compassion, karuna, it doesn't mean that we have to really be feeling this, oh, may you get well. We don't even have to be feeling that we wish that we sincerely wish they would get well. Again, as Helen Luke has taught me, it is the wishing that you wished that they wished to be well. There's three steps removed and you're still inclining the heart. And so this is what we wish to do here in this karuna. We've softened the heart with the radiating metta. And now we want to incline the heart towards compassion and forgiveness. So we think of someone we know. And we really wish them well in their suffering. Even if they have not treated us so well, if we still have this genuine feeling towards them. It's not an exchange on that level. It's not a tit for tat. It's that there's meaning for us in this compassion. Placing that person now in your heart, if you have an image of the person or the image of the sound, what they sound like speaking, whatever it might be. Using the phrases, the phrases that I have used for so long that are not quite traditional. I'm thinking of someone right now. I can feel your suffering. May your suffering cease. A lot of people now say, I care about your suffering. I feel your suffering. May your suffering cease. May the light of love and understanding penetrate these shadows of pain and despair. May your suffering cease. May your suffering cease. I can feel your suffering. May your suffering cease. May the light of love and understanding penetrate the darkness of whatever that the shadow, whatever that shadow is, despair, pain, hopelessness. May the light of love and understanding penetrate the shadows 
of your confusion and despair. May your suffering cease. May your suffering cease. Now let all of the imaging going, all of the uh, specificity of metta or karuna, and just be. is the energetic quality that's present in the body. back to the stillness, this natural joy.
you may have encountered someone that you had a grievance against, someone you harbored ill will, and it was interfering with your compassion or your metta. So I did not plan to do this, but feeling it in the room, we will do the metta phrases. Again, like with the compassion, it's not that we are ready to forgive. It's not just even that we wish that we were ready. If we wish that we wish that we were ready, that is the inclining of the heart around forgiveness. can be so far removed and yet connected. Safety in that manner. I will say a phrase out loud and then you repeat it silently. And they're quite overlapping. So you'll quickly catch on. For any harm I may have caused others, knowingly or unknowingly, through my thoughts, words, and actions, I ask their forgiveness. I'll repeat it once more. For any harm I may have caused to others, knowingly or unknowingly, through my thoughts, words, actions, I ask their forgiveness. Moving on. For any harm others may have caused me, knowingly or unknowingly, through their thoughts, words, and actions, I forgive them as best I am able. Repeating, for any harm others may have caused me, knowingly or unknowingly, through their thoughts, words, and actions, I forgive them as best I am able. For any harm I may have caused to myself, knowingly or unknowingly, through my thoughts, words, and actions, I forgive myself as best I am able.
any harm I may have caused myself, knowingly or unknowingly, through my thoughts, words, and actions. I forgive myself as best I am able. Now just be, the heart's been so tenderized, letting loose of story, letting loose of the phrases, letting loose of images, letting loose of any striving, just be. So peaceful to just be, so available to life from just being. One is not to be discouraged if one has a hard time of forgiving a person or a situation or oneself. One is not to be discouraged. It's just an opportunity to practice. Sooner or later those binds will soften and eventually fall away. Or at least most of them fall away to be really specific. So very gentle around this. Uh, If one can have a forgiveness tied up in the care providing role and other parts of one's life, it's okay. It's okay. It's not, it's, it's not a question of uh, being exiled forever. It's a whole new uh, way of relating that changes at all. So at this time, I want to do just a few announcements to the group and I want to pass out, have the volunteers pass out 
uh, the uh, uh, little exercise I've got for you. And this exercise is, well, actually, I'll start the other way first. Um, on, uh, I, have, I've, I have a number of things online at dharmawisdom.org that are not on the lines uh, online at Dharma Seed. So you can find these teachings at both places. And um, a lot of these different kinds of teachings are useful. Um, of the, of uh, the, I've written three books. Uh, this book, Emotional Chaos to Clarity, is the most immediately uh, relating to what we've been doing today. And I'm going to tell you certain chapter numbers. Those of you who are writing down, you could just stand in the bookstore and read one chapter. <laughs> and or go on Amazon and see how many chapters they'll let you read. Um, so chapters three, well, I can tell you what they are. That might help you a little with that. Chapter three, about living an intentional life. Much more information on that. Chapter five, about letting go of expectations. Very much a problem in the world of care providing. Your expectations, the expectations of the people that you take care of, professional expectations, family members' expectations. I, uh, uh, never mind, I'm not going to tell that story. So, uh, chapter seven, starting your day with clarity. Uh, if you're given the difficulty when you're in a care providing role, if you will take just a few minutes and I describe it in such detail uh, how to do this, the starting your day with clarity while you're still lying in bed, it's, um, if there was one chapter I'd have you read, it would be that chapter. And then uh, ch- chapter nine, which is making skillful decisions, uh, just a, a, a little small uh, short chapter on how to make skillful decisions. And then chapter 10 on cultivating the qualities of loving kindness and compassion, what we were just doing. And uh, chapter 11 on living into life through gratitude. As I was saying earlier about having gratitude for the little things in your job, that that gratitude can have a kind of um, redefining effect on us. And then chapter 14, uh, bringing mindfulness to major, making major life changes, just because that's an area of such interest to me, helping people with changes. And then chapter 15, about keeping boundaries. You particularly need that in terms of your role, like being clear on boundaries. And then chapter 18, on overcoming ordinary compulsiveness. We can develop, um, uh, why I call it ordinary compulsiveness is is explained in the chapter, but in our care providing, it can be so much tension and all that we can have a lot of ordinary compulsiveness. And then chapter 19 on living skillfully with the difficult. Those are the chapters. And that 19 would be the other. If there's only two chapters you go read, that would be the second chapter I would recommend. And then um, uh, my book, Dancing with Life, the, the first four chapters are about dukkha. And um, 
the we have we tend to have I think we know dukkha because we've known pain, but the Buddhist concept of dukkha is um, uh, much more uh, subtle than we understand. So if I, in that book I would just have you read those first four chapters. It's so worth so much, and it includes like why we're so uncomfortable with suffering in our society. There's I go into great detail about all the various reasons that we feel so embarrassed by, ashamed of ourselves for having suffering, all of which is delusional from my view and from the Buddha's view. And then the third book I did is um, a book called uh, The the, the, uh, Nine Bodies. And it's all about, um, it's, it's it's not for most of you in here probably, it's about these nine levels of consciousness or nine bodies of consciousness or nine aspects of, 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 our, of our consciousnesses that we can navigate through. And it's for, it's for people who've got, uh, who either naturally have those experiences or they're coming through in your yoga or your meditation. And um, um, it's a book of practice and it's got a lot of, more kind of esoteric material in there and I've written it for people to help them with their Vipassana but it it might be better if you're interested in this area at all you could also come to we only do one retreat a year on that here and it's already filled for this year so it'd have to be next year to come to it but it's if you could look at the book just to see if this kind of material interests you like I say I don't think for most of you it would but I spent 14 years doing that book um, and then what what I prepared as a takeaway is uh, this uh, a, a little sheet that takes you through 10 steps of self-soothing and how to utilize self-soothing and it's just one step after another and it's pretty obvious so I'm not going to uh, talk you through them all but uh, a mature mind-heart knows how to self-soothe. And one of the problems, of challenges with many of the people that you may be involved with in a care-providing role is they lack self-soothing skill. And so, listen to that response, huh? That's nice. So you can you can utilize what uh, the one I'm talking you through, but you can also look at your own self soothing skills I have others I just can't put them all on one page uh, and uh, and it's uh, there's also in emotional cast to clarity there's a whole thing about self-soothing uh, somewhere in there uh, and it is it is um, you know how a baby a baby that you know, we, we, we we let the baby cry for a while so it learns to soothe itself and collect itself uh, that never stops <laughs> every stage of life, there's new needs for self-soothing. In my change and transition work, I actually, on the workshop, I take you through the life stage developments and what's needed at each life stage development. But at every stage, there's disappointment and there's challenges and we sometimes, they don't go well. And so we, we never stop needing self-soothing techniques and, they, and we never stop needing to update the ones we're using. And again, this is a mark of maturity. So I'm saying that as a little stimulant to get you more interested. And if I can have the um, volunteers come 
uh, take these and there should be more than enough and you can bring what's left back to me and if you will just divide them up so that you, you and I'm going to go on while this is and then um, the, so the last little before we get uh, we're going to do a little kind of closing and then a second closing um When, uh, like when I was having you do the movement and then into stillness, you had been prepared for that by the morning. You trusted me. You had moved in your body. You had had a series of experiences that had prepared you for that. Sometimes... um, uh, you, you, you're here at Spirit Rock and you see something done and you go, that's great, I'm going to go do it with this group or that group. And it's not always so wise. So um, uh, I would caution you about that. And in the, the standing movement I did, anything having to do with being bent over, I, I, was, I moved your body before we ever bent over in the way. I, everything was done with was built on something else. So be very careful of just taking something. Uh, let's see. There's, there's still people in the back, very back. Um, uh, so just be careful about that because you, you you could get people in situations that they're not ready for. So just that, that caution with that. And on the back of what you're giving out is uh, information about my Change and Transition Institute and the reason I'm mentioning that is because in 2020, I'm going to uh, do my second training for people to become change and transition strategists. So for you to know what that means, you can go to the, the skillfulchange.com and just read about it. It's all done as a nonprofit, but uh, you can read all about that if you want, if you're interested uh, in, in that way. So I think that that is all of my... Uh, announcements because I'm going to give the, anybody that uh, the, I'm, I'm, we're going to do a, just a little semi-closing here because anybody that wants to leave I'm going to focus primarily at, at, in this next period of time on the people that are here for CEU units but for them to ask questions and all and then if there's still time left I'll take more questions or hear your experience. I'd love to hear your experience about what it is that you need to do to take care of yourself. I always like hearing about that. So I'd like to do that if I get the chance, but we'll see. But um, So if, you, if, if for some reason you would like to leave now, you're not going to hurt my feelings if you get up and leave. So that, it's been great to have you here, and I would understand if at any point you want to leave. So now moving straight on into the CEUs and the, the people that are here for that reason. Any any questions for me that relates to your professional work that that you would have or to you as a professional care provider? And I'm going to say some things, but um, anything that you would want to ask. Right here is a... So, Right here in front, and then we'll come back to you. Thank you so much for today. 
how do you gain confidence in staying in that more responsive space? Um, I think I was thinking what you said to the kind lady about uh, working with the person who who doesn't want her to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, she can come back and say, great, I'm going to take care of myself. And she can get a, probably a fair amount of pushback from that. Mm-hmm. And then I also was thinking about what you said, you know, we have to stay far away from the edge when there are plenty of people who say, no, the edge is the place to be. You want to be on the edge. Yes. And so um, how do you stay in that responsive okay. area? So the, build confidence there. Those are two kinds of questions. Remember, I, I made a distinction between the edge and the edge of the edge. When people talk about the edge, they're a bit fuzzier than they realize, <laughs> in my experience. I've, and I, I grew up around a lot of edgy people who were on the edge of the edge, so I've witnessed a lot around that. So with the, with the going with that one first, um, you, you want to have an edge so that you're growing, but you don't want to be at the edge of your edge all the time so that you're straining, like every moment you're really stretched as far as you can possibly stretch. You, it, it's not sustainable. That's why you're at the edge of the edge. You're not at the edge of the edge. You're back away from the edge of the edge of that whole, because then your movement at time is going to move you to the edge of the edge. But if you, if, but if you stay at the edge of the edge, you're going to spend more time over the edge than actually, it, 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 it's not sustainable. It's not kind to yourself. It's going to create situations that you would, need to forgive and so forth. So that's one thing. And then the, the, to your first question, the way you learn to be responsive rather than reactive is have a practice. Because you've got to have some sort of, not got to, that's not fair language. It's very difficult to do without some sort of practice. It doesn't have to be this practice, but some sort of practice. And then that you have clarity as to what you're doing. So you've got to have clarity. And then you're you're willing to be at your edge <laughs> and you'll make a bunch of mistakes so you learned you learn to be non reactive to be responsive instead by being reactive a bunch of times and stopping or trying to stop and not be you reckon you have to learn what is being reactive you have to learn that distinction by living it and then a bunch of times you'll try to be responsive but you ended up reactive and as you learn the territory it's like learning to dance or play the piano or anything with the experience gives you the confidence and uh, because it's difficult does not mean you're doing something wrong actually all of us will say that together because it's difficult, it doesn't mean I'm doing something wrong. Again, because it's difficult, it doesn't mean I'm doing something wrong. That's hard to really come to accept. Okay, the gentleman, please, here, the green. And then she'll be next. I'm not exactly sure how to put this in a question, but I, I find I'm willing to, well, I'm a nurse, and I'm willing to give my patient, forgive my patients for most, almost any behavior. Uh, most of my patients I deal with have uh, chronic illnesses of a lifetime of poor choices, you know, whether it's CHF, COPD, all those things. However, my managers 
who want me to take care of that patient in 10 minutes or less and keep moving fast and not have any overtime, et cetera, et cetera, I judge the hell out of them. <laughs> and I have a very difficult time with that. Uh, you know, kind of how, how dare you manage me? I'm the one taking care of the patient. You're the one pushing paperwork around. Um, and I don't really know how to address that very well just besides to be grateful that I can take care of my patients, that I am in a position where I can take care of these people and and that's the only thing that seems to work sometimes. But I'm wondering if you have any suggestions about what might work. This has come up a lot because of our load management that that is done in the caring profession and both in regular medicine and, and in relation to uh, uh, therapeutic psychiatric kind of medicine where the, you go, that's an impossible assignment. And... Um, uh, each person has to make their own peace with that. If it is, if it constantly eats you, then at some point you may have to, for your, your own uh, preservation, get out of it. You just can't do it because it can eat you too much. Because the, the, if, if, if the wrongness of it, if, if, you, if what you experience is the wrongness of it over and over again, then, then that's, what you're, that's your diet. If on the other hand, the gratitude that you were saying that you can do this and you learn to be strategic as to what you do and what you don't do, then that's that being strategic to say, okay, this is my limitation, so this is the way I've got to do it. And then little acts of rebellion are important when you find ways to have little acts of rebellion. Daily. Uh, yes. And then uh, each day uh, letting go cleaning yourself so the sweeping that i had us do today sweep yourself every day at the end if not numerous times and this is for many of you sweep yourself during the day uh, uh wash your hands at the end of the day and um uh again this is not just for professionals but it can be for anybody what i do what i learned to do and what i've now had again, many, many, many people do, is learn to put on the cloak of care provider. And you put that cloak on when you get to the office or wherever, wherever it's appropriate. Wait till the last minute to put it on. It's too heavy to wear and in the car. It's too, or on the, on the you know, subway, no. But so you get to wherever you're going and you put your cloak on and you leave it on during the day at lunch, if you can, you take it off. Some people, they, they can't for one reason or another. The lunch is too short. They're in too much turmoil. But at the end of the day, as soon as you get outside, you take that cloak off. And you know you're doing this. And you're resolute about this. This isn't some nice little uh, 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 imagery to kind of make a little different on the edge. This is owning the truth. And you've got to hold it that way. Got it. You, I have found it to be much more powerful if you hold it that way, that you do that. And so this can help you renew yourself and sustain yourself in this difficult situation. The, this all needs to be changed, obviously. And maybe it will get changed eventually. That'll be great. But for right now, it's like this. And we need people who care to be willing to fill those roles as long as you're not destroying yourself doing it. 
This is new to me in terms of my mom just getting injured last week and having her on meds, which she'd never had before, and the combination of which um, caused disorientation. It, sometimes with an older person, there can be some latent um, early uh, dementia and mm -hmm. that this could aggravate it. Mm -hmm. So what I've been wondering, if you have any advice on reality. Um, for example... When someone is delusional um, or disoriented, like when, when can it be helpful to pull them back into where they are now, into reality? Like, in other words, we're talking about presence, but if someone thinks there's someone else or, there's, or they're talking to someone dead, like how do you determine what is going to serve the benefit of that patient? Would it, is it going to help them to recover their consciousness, if you can somehow gently bring them back into reality? Uh, in part, I'm not qualified to answer that because that's a partially a medical question which I'm not part of, uh, qualified to answer. In part from experience, which I've had quite a bit of, uh, the, um, um, there's a bunch of different segments there. You, you've, um, you have to be alert to their hurting themselves and, and in a way... You, you don't want to be part of the denial system because they are in a kind of denial, an unrealness of delusion. So uh, this could they could get a position where they need 24-hour supervision, that sort of thing, for instance, in relation to hurting themselves. In relation to, I, I, I have not, uh, the, in terms of, there's different kinds of dementia kinds of things, so that I don't even, at least in my experience, no one thing has worked with any person uh, but being patient and, and uh, uh, letting, the, you know, when people are, are losing it, they start to cover up. They sort of fake it for a while. Uh, I let people, I personally, this is what I do, I let people fake it. I know they don't really know what they're talking about, but I let them. And then I'm very careful when I'm asking them to come back to reality. And I only do it a few times. And I, I'm always consistent in my signaling to them. Then, okay, now we're really like coming back to this focus. And, and, uh, and if that doesn't work, no blaming them, no vibe of blaming them. Mm. The, the, not, there's no f frustration on our part that's appropriate for them to have to feel. Yeah, I've been trying to explain to my mother that it's the meds that she's taking that is causing some of this disorientation. Does that generally help? Can they understand I, I, that it's I, the I don't know. Some people, yes, some people know in my experience, and I just don't know across the board. I don't know if there's somebody's done a big survey or not. Maybe somebody in the room can answer that for you after we end okay. today. Okay. I don't want anyone trying to answer now. Anyone else with a question or comment? Um, I'm in my residency and we have long hours and there's a lot of this difficulty in terms of just like the wheel. I'm and sorry, I couldn't hear what you said you were. So I'm in my residency. Yes, right. Um, and a lot of my colleagues were very tired. And I often find it difficult when I will try to say something in a more positive light. I don't want to shame them for, for their feelings, what they're feeling, and I just wanted to hear maybe what you have to say in terms of when people come to you with more negative attitudes or complaints about the system we're in, and I might feel differently on how I'd approach it, how to go about without shaming 
Yeah. Um, so that can be very um, um, that can be very difficult. And residency is a good example of that. Where, uh, um, but again, it could be you know, in any any of the medical situations. So uh, first of all, be careful that you not lose your truth. You not let someone else, a number of other people saying something over and over again and you start thinking like they're thinking because if everybody's thinking it, it must be reality. Your reality is your reality. Your experience of residency is your experience. And so I would look for an ally if I could, uh, people who had some degree of thinking like you so that you that you're you get to share your experience with people that are doing the same thing you're doing if there's someone like that and then um uh at one on one at times you might reflect back your reality but mostly you listen or minimize the amount of time you're listening you know and because you're not that's a too large a task to take on as far as I would be able to know to like with the whole you know the whole group of residents that are that are in that and it is certainly a uh, it's you know it's like a, the complaining the, the that that is like the stereotypical resident view right is that complaining view and um, so be it uh, but what's more disturbing is when all of that is excusing sloppy behavior in terms of like in an emergency room or something uh, that's 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 more troubling and you just have to find your own way about when you go hey to someone do you realize that you've da 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 you know someone who's just repeatedly missing the vein and this with one person after another and you go wait you know, did you realize what you're doing here? That you know, just you, you have to just pick your spots carefully. But uh, it, we can't be. I, I find it impossible to be totally silent in in the face of things that seem really off. But you can't. You, but I don't necessarily think I know either. But there's certain things that I will say. I will speak up about. Before we go to the next person, I wanted to say, throughout today, I have done a number of self-referencing because I wanted you to feel my personal connection to this. Yesterday, I was in a meeting for seven, no, day before yesterday, I was in a meeting for seven hours, and I didn't say a word to the very last of the entire seven hours. So this is, this is, this is a situational that I'm doing what I'm doing. Not. <laughs> so over here, there was a question. There's a lot of questions over here. Okay. Someone who's not questioned. Let's start in the window, and we'll walk back this way. It's on. It's on. Um, so this is a little bit of a rambling question, but that's only. And can you speak up a little more? Maybe. Okay. There you go. Sorry, this is a little bit rambling, but that's the only way I know to give context. So, um, thank you for today. Very much appreciate it. I happened to stumble upon this. I was, I'm was i a caregiver, a primary care for an older gentleman with Alzheimer's. I work about 130 hours a week, live in. Um, and I brought him out here the other day on the drive. And uh, he used to be a carpenter. And he has some Dharma connection. from. It's kind of lost now, but... And just seeing this building was uh, really magnificent for him. And he was like, wow, look at that wood and what amazing work they've done. And you know, So it was 
and then just happened to see the flyer. And so Saturday is my one day off, and Saturday and part of Sunday. So I feel like it's a worthwhile use of time coming here. But um, I've been with him for more than a year straight now, and uh, I'm pretty burnt out at the moment. I'm going to be going to Nepal next week uh, for a month. But um, in a more ongoing way, I just wrestle with two things that kind of come up. One isn't really answerable, but in a sense with him, I keep feeling like I'm making some breakthroughs with some kind of intimacy, but as he declines further and further and sort of becomes more and more paranoid, there's no way for me to establish a lasting trust with him. And that's, um, that's very, very difficult because it feels like, you know, two steps forward, five steps back, whatever. It's, a, it's very inconsistent, the way that yes. he can relate to me, and, uh, and as a result, the kind of care that I can give him. So that's just a general, I don't know if you have any input from these retreats no. in the past on that. Uh, so this has happened even with great Dharma teachers where they've gone through that, where gradually uh, the community has been supporting them with like crazy and, and then lost them to this deterioration. The, the first lesson in that is our own illusion about our permanency and our taking for granted our own minds and all this. You know, like, whoa, really? <laughs> you know, how, in the face of, like, in the face of you're doing this a hundred hours a week, you can still just assume your own permanency in a certain way. It's just amazing the way it is. So that's the first thing is to like take the lesson for ourselves. How time is precious in the, in the Buddhist term that, that, that uh, all those I love are in the nature to get sick, die, and all. And then uh, there's the whole, there's a sutta about that. Um, but um, uh, you, the, you, you shift your goal. You shift what, how, what is the, what is your, what is your goal in a way of just having him be comfortable and at ease and uh, that his, uh, that his, uh, there's a degree of moderation even to that paranoia and all as it's going. You're just holding it as large as you can for him and letting loose of any expectation. You're holding out of your value. You're not holding because you're going to succeed. And so when you see that, when you fall into succeeding, then you're demanding. There's a demand and that demand doesn't, it's, it's, it's impossible. So that's that's the thing, and that cross like that that is your cross to bear the the your aspiration and the reality and staying right in the center of it. I said this to someone earlier. It will change you in time. You 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 will find a kind of freedom by the conscious bearing of the, your aspiration and the reality of the situation. Thank you. That is helpful. I have a, a second, not terribly related question, but. Um... And just judging from the little bit I heard of, of your biography, too, you might have some input. But so I, I intended, you know, taking this job on uh, for it to be part of my practice, and it has certainly shown. Be, before this, I was, you know, some periods of more intensive study and, and formal practice in Asia, and um, I intended for it to be, you know, like a, a different format. You know, see where my strengths and weaknesses are, and it's been very humbling uh, to say the least I've gotten my butt kicked but um, I guess what I wrestle with most deeply is 
I have, on the one hand, I love this man. I care for him. Um, I also increasingly feel like my particular presence, my unique presence, is not that different than anybody else's being there with him. And so I feel like, given that life is short, it's hard for me to convince myself that the work I'm doing is the most meaningful thing I could do, even for him. Like, I'm not convinced that me being, you know, in retreat or pursuing other things and dedicating that to him, that that would be any less meaningful than me being in the thick of it where he perceives me as his, you know, his... So, Jailer, uh, when I, I've been asked this question before, and uh, the only thing I, I, I can't answer that for you, but the inquiry is legitimate. It's a legitimate inquiry, and only you will know when that feels right for you. There's so many uh, particular factors in the individual around this that 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 for one reason you, one person I might if I were forced answer, I might say, uh, no, there's no reason for you to stay. But someone else, I would say, no, there's something here that, you know, I, so I can't, I, I would not be serving you if I went further than that. But it's a very legitimate inquiry, and it's legitimate in, in a general way to go, I've, I've finished my service in this situation. Because your life is your life, and that is the life you're most responsible for. Again, there's many things about, there's just too many individual things for me to say. But you, there's no reason for shame in this inquiry, no reason for guilt. You will have some guilt probably, no matter what, but just by either consideration. But that, that is, that is uh, that's selfing, that guilt and that. It's, what's the right thing to do here for, for the people involved? And again, in terms of thinking about him, you can think about what would he wish for me, and you know he he might well. I just there's all of these kinds of things around that. So I, I have to stop there with you with this. Thank you very much. Okay, who's next? Maybe here, and we'll come back to you over here. Hi, um, I am a women's health nurse practitioner, okay. and. Um, I get a lot of people coming into me with physical complaints when really what's going on is they can't soothe themselves, they're hurting, all the things that I'm working on fixing myself over the last 50 years. And I'm trying to learn how that I don't have to fix them. But their expectation is that I do. And um, I know I can't change their expectation but I'm wondering how can I do that, still keeping my values and coming off still looking compassionate um, and competent while knowing, I mean, I could fix a few little things. And mm-hmm. some people do respond to me just listening and trying as hard as I can to just be quiet. Sometimes I breathe, I rock back and whatever. But there's some people that are angry at me because... I'm not fixing what they perceive to be the problem. And I didn't hear what your profession was. I'm a nurse practitioner, and I work in women's health. Okay. So, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, in your own distinctions, what you're offering, being very clear in what your offering is. What is your offering? 
so one offering can be comfort. I can give comfort. I can listen as comfort. If it's appropriate, I can touch as comfort. Uh, so I can give some information. There's information I can give. There's some knowledge I can give. I don't make a distinction between information and knowledge. Uh, knowledge is the knowing how to actually use that information. Information is just the information. It's like the instruction line or something, but the knowledge is you that this is how you really do it. And then um, you, those things that you know you can be of service, you be of service in those ways, but mostly you hold it in attitudinal and heart ways. And that's what you have to offer. And they will, you will do as best you're able. And that beyond that, that is, that is not your, don't take that on as your attention. If it comes up, you can be honest for those that it's inappropriate to say it. You know, this is all I can do. But many times you can't say it. You just hold it and you can, you can hold their well-being. So you can hold with them what they are wanting to have fixed. And many times what they're wanting to have fixed isn't the real issue, even. But you, and you may even know that, but you still just hold it with them. Because that's all you can do given the limits of time and everything, and qualify, you know, licensing issues or whatever. That's what you do. You stay within your frame, but you, you hold it at this deep level. And it will make a difference. It'll make a difference to them. Someone really listening, someone real holding the possibility. I've modeled that as best I am able today for you of holding possibility for each of you while in a group. That that, that makes a difference. You know, the placebo effect is the best medicine that we've ever discovered. And I don't know why they're so uh, disdainful of it since it's by far the best medicine. So that kind of work, that kind of holding I'm pointing to has a kind of placebo effect in my my experience base. Am I being clear enough? Yeah, I guess what I just need to do, and as we did our walking meditation on what can I do to take help, care of me. to take care of myself is to not try and please everybody. No, you can't do that. You you stay true to your offering and and, and the integrity of the exchange. But pleasing is a whole nother matter. That goes into the boundary article. There's a whole thing about boundary problems because you're a pleaser. There's other issues that will cause boundary problems. But that's one of them is, is being a pleaser. Our pleasing causes us to not keep the right boundaries. And we suffer. And in the long run, we're, we're oftentimes reinforcing something that's not wholesome in the other. So moving on here, if we can, down front here. Thank you for today. Um, so I'm an early career psychiatrist in Oakland and working for going on year four. And it's a pretty demanding corporate company, 70 patients per week. And um, they're all there's a lot of complex PTSD and trauma. It's rare that I just get mild insomnia patient. Um, <laughs> that's like the, a light day. Um, what would be your advice on just guiding myself through my early career decisions? At what point, because I also have a friend who's also a physician at a different company who has reduced her work hours. She's like, oh, I take every other Friday off now. And um, 
the amount of patients is half of the company that where I'm working, and she just she's taking more trips. It seems like she's just more joyful. Um, at what point do I stay at the edge of the edge mm-hmm. <laughs> um, versus you know decide to maybe look at other options? Because there are other options. Yeah, there are other options. There are other options. Um, and tied with that, I struggle because I'm, I come from an immigrant fem- family. I'm from originally from Bosnia and came here when I was 13. So I s- sometimes have like my parents' voice still of like, you came to America and you should be lucky to have this opportunity and hard work pays off. Um, so I kind of struggle of when is it okay to make that change and how much self-soothing and mm-hmm. daily like yeah I guess yeah so the self-soothing um of um, this is what I have a I have a inclination of mind that has to be revealed to answer that question um I'm a believer in hard work and pushing oneself for a while in hard work. And um, as you, in your, the beginning of your career, you're doing a certain amount of that, I think has a certain value to you because it gets you, uh, it, it kind of, the idea that it's all going to be, that somehow you go fix it and make it perfect, that you, it, it gets you, to, it can get, hard work can get us to a realistic relationship to our work. So there's a degree that that's, from my prejudice point of view about that, um, uh, I have found to be valuable for myself, and I've encouraged that in others. But at some point, you are you are not, first of all, reflecting the truth of the marketplace. You should leave and go get a better job that has better than that because they need to get the message. They can't keep good people if they don't change you know the system so you're helping fix the system by leaving rather than just being a deserter um in part you know it takes a lot of getting that message before corporations change often and sometimes even then it's only because we as a a, a nation insist on it through our our, our, our making laws but um so that's that, that's one thing that let go through the ordeal. There's value of going through an ordeal. But okay, now I've done this ordeal. I know what this feels like. Now I'm going to find a better situation for myself. But then you do that knowing you know what an ordeal is and that you can survive an ordeal. It gives you that thing that you have given at the front lines where it's the toughest. There's great value in all that. And also then you know how to appreciate what otherwise, if you'd started out with that, you'd be irritated with the more... Uh, easier system so there's lots to be gained from that but when that happens that's that's got so many personal factors I couldn't tell you yeah but and appreciate your let those voices of of your parents uh, I would really have you honor the ancestors in that way but not that doesn't they don't make the decision but you really celebrate them being in your head heart Really celebrate that. That they're good companions. Over here. Hi, thank you for today. 
Um, what comes up? I'm in the healing. I'm in, you know, healing and medicine. I have a, and I work for Kaiser Permanente. I have a very heavy client load. You work with? I work for Kaiser. I have oh. a very heavy client load. I have all the man- yes. management issues. And yes. I feel like I'm navigating that. I'm also the mother of a teenager with mental health issues. And I know the edge. I know how to not live on the edge. And there are just simply times where I live over the edge. It's just what is. Um, My teenager can get unbalanced and we're over the edge. And that's, there's, there's, so, so that is really the, the heartbreaker for me is how do I live over the edge and, you know, not have the regret and the remorse and the pain of, you know, her illness. And, you know, I come back. I like, I know I come back, but it like, for me, like that's, I I don't know if that's making sense, but it's. So the personal, the personal care providing can sometimes even for professional be like 10 times the burden of the professional because it is so personal to us. It's so heartbreaking because it's a person, a young person at the beginning of their life that can't really do it right now. And so in terms of self-care, when, when there's balance for you to really take care of yourself so that you're building up the reserve because you know what's going to come yet again. And that's one thing. And then second, uh, uh, yes, you're going to do everything that you can do for her, but not demanding that it be otherwise. There are conditions so much larger than you can control and you're demanding as though your personal demand can overcome that is is making it harder on you rather than going with, okay, at this point I'm just doing, um, um, shoot, I'm forgetting the word, um, uh, triage, triage. That you're just, you know, that you're just doing, you're just taking, keeping her, you're just keeping her alive, you know, you, so that you, you're, uh, triage, triage, I couldn't think of the word, uh, that you're, that, that, so that you're, the, the, uh, sampajana, this clear understanding is what's called for, but what's appropriate for you to do, given who you are and what capacities, energies you have, that, that is, that is, uh, that is, uh, wise intention put into action. Like, oh, this is all I can do. And then lots of loving kindness for her and for you. And support wherever you can start to develop more of it. Yeah. And, and, and not thinking this is going to be, you don't know what the future holds. It could get much worse, but it could get better. And much worse might be actually easier than where it is now. You, the, just be, beware of story. Just stay uh, open to that you don't know. Can I ask a follow-up question? Sure. So um, one of the painful parts is she blames me for everything that she feels and everything that's happened to her, which I understand, but it's a very narrow view. So on top of my internal story, there's the external story coming out in addition to all of the other things that are falling apart. And so, um, yes, I mean, I'm I'm doing all of that, and it's also really hard. So this is something to everybody to pay attention to. She, her daughter blames her. It's all her fault. So that's going to happen no matter what right now. So choose to say, you know, I'm going to take the blame for her. I choose to carry this blame. Since the blame is coming at me anyway, I choose to accept it because I'm being asked to take this load. Yes, I love you and I will take right now this load for you. 
I'm not believing it, but I will carry this load. I will let her say these things to me and, I, and I'm not taking it personally. And this is the practice you have to let loose over and over and over and over again to do it. But if you know that you're voluntarily c- carrying this for her because she's not well enough to carry it for herself, then it makes a huge difference, huge difference. And this, I, I've heard this over and over and over again about this kind of blaming. And uh, so that's why I'm saying it relates to everybody or many of you in this way. And it will make a difference that your shift in attitude, one way it's like doubly heavy, another way it's like half as heavy. So it's not just, it's it's got... Again, it's one of these things larger than the added onness. It's 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 uh, geometric or something like that. It's so really okay. I will carry this for her, and it's you're carrying it for her as an as a, a, an energy, a concept. But it's not you're not carrying it as a personal thing. You're not carrying it as a truth. It's not a truth. But it's 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 a, a situational carry. It's a it's a holding of reality in a way that allows someone else to have less suffering. Because if she were to start blaming herself, really bad things could happen in another way. So that's the perspective across the board in terms of this. One last one. Actually, no. We should stop now. <laughs> Let's do. We're going to do uh, loving kindness phrases out loud. If you've not gone out the door, don't go out the door now. This is. So we've been in a time together, huh? We've been in a time. And uh, in the, in this in this time, we've we have been exposed to each other's suffering, to each other's past, to each other's present. And these fears about the future. So there's a degree of cleaning to be doing. At the end of this, when we all stand up, I would have you, while you're here on the land, leave everything that you can leave here in the way of stuff that you wish to be left. Look at the hills, walk up in the hills, whatever you can't. The retreat will have started now, so you can't go past the gate. But there's all sorts of paths around here. And um, uh, again, uh, interacting with each other because Sangha is one of the three jewels. Community. Sangha means community. So the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And then um, uh, uh, really appreciating the courage that people have to speak up. And that as the, with you, this is your one day off of the week and you chose to spend it here. All of you this is you. This was your day, and you chose to spend it here. So appreciation for yourself and each other as we do this loving kindness, the well wishing for one another. I'm going to say a phrase out loud, and then you repeat it, and then there will be a pause. And in that pause, you receive the loving kindness from the community here. And as you're saying the words. What would those words really mean to you? Like the first one's about being safe. What does it mean? Sometimes when I'm doing this for myself, which is may I be safe from internal, external harm, I will then proceed to name all of these different ways about being safe from my actions, being safe from my words, being all of these different, I will just iterate on out to really deepen into the feeling of being safe and naming the ways that my lack of mindfulness could cause harm to me or the lack of someone else's mindfulness. And, I, and it's very uh, grounding to do that for me. And you'd have to see if it is for you. So 
being aware of what the words mean. And when you, we encourage you to make your own loving kindness phrases and choose words that you know what it means. When I was in the prison program, uh, I started out with, may I be happy? And they just, blah! <laughs> so uh, that was a great lesson to me. And that word completely disappeared from the vocabulary. They were not in a position that they saw being happy. But you'll hear that the, the calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. They, those were the phrases they could really get behind. Like they could ground into that. That was, yeah, that's my, that's my aspiration in this situation where, you know, there's, four people in a room where there's supposed to be two or six people in a room or a little cell and all that. So um, do choose words that mean something to you. So first, just acknowledging that we're here and that we're in a transition. And then thinking of the interactions, the stories you've heard, your own experience, the feel of the land, the feel of this building. Out of gratitude, out of appreciation, out of learning, your heart's been open. And with that opening of the heart, you share that well-wishing, that friendness with others through these phrases. May you be safe from internal and external harm. Safe from internal and external harm. May you have a calm clear mind and a peaceful loving heart may you have may you be physically strong healthy and vital May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. And now I'll dedicate our day as we learn to uh, be wiser, kinder in our care providing, wiser and kinder to the other and to ourselves. May it bring quality and benefit and freedom and choice to our lives and in turn have the same effect on those we love and on everyone with whom we come in contact, no matter the context. May all beings find their way 
through the difficulties of care providing and receiving care providing, may all beings find their way to the end of suffering. Our day is complete, and thank you for being here for this day. Uh, Assuming I'm still around kicking, I'll be here next year. You're welcome back. Bring a friend. It's a wonderful day, just the sharing of community this way. So thank you, thank you, thank you.